Hello there. You're listening to the Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We're also going to reflect on the slate of movies that we got last year by talking about our top 10 favorite films of 2021. We're going to start out with some news first, though. And did you see this? I mean, you must have heard about it at some point. But I went and read the actual article, The the Undoing of Joss Whedon. That was a vulture feature story by Lila Shapiro. This dude is crazy. I did not read this story, but I'm horror. going to as soon as we're done. Did you hear uh, anything about it, though? No, I didn't even know this was a thing. Dude, you just said it just now. Is off. I couldn't believe Hit me it. Hit with you the highlights. Yeah, you definitely need to go and read through all of it because, I mean, yeah, these are the highlights, but there's even worse stuff in there. But yeah, Joss Whedon did an interview and started talking about all the scandals that have come out about him, as well as the Justice League production, which, of course, is like the biggest, most recent scandal. And he called Ray Fisher a bad actor in both senses of the word, because there's the whole thing of like in the Snyder Cut, how Cyborg was a much bigger part. And in Whedon's Justice League version, he was not. He was mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, I cut him out because I thought he was a bad actor. And then he was saying that all of his gripes that he had, that he came out with it after the film, that Ray Fisher was just acting in bad faith. Like he's just doing it because he was salty that he wasn't good enough. Wow. So that was what we didn't said about that. Jesus. He had also I said. I mean, well, we also know that he's not really that bad of an actor because we saw him in Zack Snyder's cut and he was pretty good. I know. Like you can't. That could have worked. A year ago when we didn't see that movie, but now that we saw it and we saw the rest of like those scenes. We know he at least, you know, is decently good, like as good as everybody else in that movie. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, those are big people in the rest of the cast and he was able to be on par with them. So and then the other things that were coming out with the Justice League production, Gal Gadot had at one point said that we didn't threatened her because Mm -hmm. she didn't want to do, I don't know, some things that he was giving her direction on like the laying down and letting Flash come and lay on top of her with his Mm -hmm. face and her boobs. So she didn't want to do stuff like that. And Whedon was like, I will end your career. Like she was saying that he was threatening her. And his defense to that was, no, I didn't threaten her at all. She just misinterpreted because English is her second language. And then Gal Gadot recently posted a thing or her like PR people did. And they said, I did not misinterpret anything. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that was the full statement, and I love that. But, yeah, and then this the craziest thing to me was he was talking about how the Snyder fans were out to get him at some point, and they were using, quote, bad things that his wife said he'd done. Like, this was a sentence he said. He was like, my wife, after we divorced, and she published something about how awful of a person I was and the bad things I did, they came after me for it because they knew I was gettable. And he was like, look. I did do the bad things, but then they knew that they could take me down. And how could they? Like he admitted to being like, yeah, some of those things you said were absolutely true. How he was dare saying, cancel culture do its job? I know. Those right? bastards. I didn't want to face consequences. Just because my wife said I did these things and I also did them doesn't mean you should attack me for them. 
Like that was what was crazy. He had said that, oh, there were untrue things that she had said as well. But then he had said, but no, I did do some of those bad things that she was saying that I did. Like, my guy, what are you doing? Like, I just don't understand it. He starts sweating in the interview. He's like, I just, I, you know, I, I did some of those bad things. Uh, I, you know, you know, I, uh, you know, she misinterpreted me. You know, so English is her second language, you know. I mean, she, she said, I don't understand. My wife knows nothing. What, what does she know? She's lying, but like not all of it. But like, you can't use that against me. You know, you weren't there. I mean, she was there and she told you, but you, you weren't there. Why didn't those fans realize that some of those bad things that she said I did, I did do, but they didn't realize that some of those things that she said I did, I didn't do. They should have known that. They should have known that I only did half those bad things. But even the bad things I did, they shouldn't have said anything about. Like, that's not their business. Exactly. Like, how could they use that against me? Unfair. Oh, so <laughs> that was a wild article to read. And they also talk a lot about, like, the parallels between his rise to fame on mm -hmm. being seen as this, like... The guy striking into the mainstream with nerd yeah. culture, whatnot, but also writing like strong female characters. And then yeah. now his downfall is also due to the internet um, and because of his actions and ways that he treats women, certainly far from a feminist. So it's that's wild. You that, should definitely uh, read that. You should forward it to me. But that's the thing that Spencer was saying is that he like broke through with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which was like this huge feminist show like writing very empowering female characters. And that's why it's just so shocking that this is what takes him down is that he's just clearly not a feminist. Yeah. I just don't know where the turn happened. I don't know. Well, they're saying it was throughout. Like there was one story from someone who's a staff writer on one of those early shows mm -hmm. that he was working on. And they said that because he didn't like the script she turned in, instead of giving her notes privately on it, she held a meet or he held a meeting with the whole writer's room and started giving a mock presentation on bad writing by using her exact script and going Jesus through beat Christ. by beat and saying like, this is terrible stuff. And she was like fighting back tears the whole time, obviously, and everyone was uncomfortable. And he thought it was like this big grand joke. Like things like that, stories God, like damn. that are scattered throughout where it's clear he's just so disrespectful and vicious. Like he's just an awful person. What a dick. And he doesn't even realize it. The end of the article is a quote from him saying, honestly, I think I was one of the nicest showrunners out there. <laughs> like, it's so insane how delusional that man was. Could you imagine if that statement was true? That'd be really that horrible be for brutal. the industry if that was yeah. factually true. How awful. Uh, in other news, something that I have heard of is that Daniel Radcliffe is going to play Weird Al in a biopic for a Roku original movie. That's the funniest bizarre. part of it to me. <laughs> a Roku original movie. I think it's fitting. Oh, it's awful. I mean, I don't know how they... I guess they were the only ones who would want to buy that, I suppose. I don't think Daniel Radcliffe is going to steal the show of the Weird Al biopic, even though he's the main character. Some other character is going to do it. I just can't imagine Daniel Radcliffe what do you mean? doing it Did you well. you see Swiss Army Man? No, I'm saying I don't think he can play Weird Al well. I'm not saying he's a bad actor. Well, he's not good enough weird for Weird Al. Al. I don't think he can embody. I mean, maybe. I mean, I'm open to it. I'm just skeptical. I'm going to stay think, as skeptical. Yeah, I think he can. I think he's taken a lot of like weird or off kilter roles, so I think he'll be able to do what needs to be done. Perhaps. But yeah, uh, in other film news, Richard Linklater is going to film. Merrily We Roll Along, which is an adaptation of a Stephen Sondheim musical, and he's going to do it over the next 20 years. 
That's not news. I've I've heard about that for a long time now. Oh, I just discovered it's news it to you. Day. It is news to me. Yeah, that's I'm been around the news for like to everyone. A else. year. I've known that for like a year. But yeah, apparently he's doing another one of his famous long films. Media did Boyhood over ten years. I think fourteen. Fourteen. Maybe. And the before trilogy over like twenty something years. Yeah. So yeah, it makes makes sense that he's gonna do this again. I don't know how much I could uh support it. I just feel like he's getting older and uh, one of these days he's gonna be filming one of these things and he's just gonna die. That's what I was wondering. I was like, that's I mean, good for him for thinking he'll be able to stick around to see it come out in twenty years, but And to replace him as Joss Whedon. Oh god. <laughs> to finish out the film. He cuts yeah. out Beanie Feldstein's entire character. Yeah. Removes every person of color that was in the film. Absolutely horrible. Anyway, in show news television, we have The Lord of the Rings, the series that will be coming out on Amazon Prime later this year. They have titled the show The Rings of Power. Yeah, I saw the little uh, teaser trailer where they announced the title. I thought it was cool. I'm excited. Seems like fun. I'm not like, I guess it did. It did get me pumping. Like like pumped up for uh, more Lord of the Rings content. I might it makes me want to rewatch Lord of the Rings, but I'm not going to do it because I know we're going to talk about it later this year at some point. I don't want to watch it twice this year because <laughs> it's fucking. I have the extended edition, so it's like 12 hours long. Yeah, it's intense. I didn't realize there was a whole teaser trailer that accompanied it. I just yeah. saw the name of it, but it I was just. I gotta go uh, and watch it. it was a very. Well, I guess I won't spoil it for you if you're going to watch it, but it's not. It's not. It's not crazy. It's just like a minute, and it's just to reveal the title. Okay, so they don't show any no footage. See, okay, but you can watch it if you want. There yeah. is, there is, um, well, I guess this isn't new, but they just have a narration, and it's the opening of Lord of the Rings: One Ring to Rule Them All. No, not mm-hmm. that. It's the uh, uh, Nine Rings for the Dwarves, Twelve for Men Doomed to something i don't remember it, but you know what i'm talking about it's the yeah, Kate yeah, blanchett yeah. thing that she says at the beginning right but it's not Kate blanchett i think it's somebody else i don't know who <laughs> wow it was very informative you know you know what i mean <laughs> you know it's the thing with the person doing the thing saying of course the thing. you, you, could you forget, know what yeah. i'm talking about let's do our box office breakdown now for january 14th to 16th plus the 17th if you include martin luther king day which we do so we're going to do two numbers one for the three day one for the four day and we're going to start off with a very respectable number for Scream. It had his debut over the past weekend, and it made thirty million in the four day and thirty three million in the four day. Did I say four day twice. I have no clue. It had thirty million in the three day and thirty three million in the four day. I think I said four days. There's twice. a lot of threes going on. It was a lot like... of thirty in the three, thirty three in the four, forty in the three, four. It made sense. Somehow. I'm sure. It did. Yeah. So anyway, quite a quite a good chunk of money for a January release. That is true. It's interesting because the holy four day MLK weekends, like it didn't change the gross that much. Like usually we see a big jump, but there's kind of minor changes, but certainly good that it broke the 30 million barrier. Mm -hmm. I was thinking it was maybe going to hit the 40 million barrier, but alas, it did not. But still good because its budget was 23 million or something. So yeah, it's already well on its way to get some profits. Um, and in second place, we know for sure. I mean, this is having massive profits. Spider Man got twenty million in the three day, 
24 million in the four day. Wow. It has now crossed 700 million domestic. Amazing. Making it the fourth highest grossing movie domestically. And it is looking likely that it can overtake Avatar's number three slot by passing 760 million. God, imagine if it released in China, if only. I know, it's crazy. I saw that they were releasing Death on the Nile in China, <laughs> but they're not going to release Spider-Man. Still, they haven't done it. and It's absurd. But The Chinese government is in good terms with Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> After um, Spider-Man was uh, uh, Sing 2 with 8 million in the 3-day and 10 million in the 4-day. All mm-hmm. right. After that, the 355 still in flop territory, 2.2 million. The King's Man also in flop territory, 2.22 million. Wait, why is that? Did you use that typo? Did you put two twos on accident? Because why would it might have? You goddamn. Maybe I needed to specify that in 2022, King's Man had 2.22 million. Yeah, but But I don't think so. I think that was the 355, but had 2.22 million. It was a mistake. Dude, the numbers are going crazy. This box office breakdown, okay? (laughs) Everything's getting twisted. Uh, Bell. Which was that like anime special movie event was one point six million, which is good. American Underdog, yeah, it's it's pretty alright. American Underdog made one point five two two four two four six million dollars. <laughs> Solid. Uh, West Side Story got nine hundred twenty eight thousand four hundred sixty two eighteen dollars. Lakers Pizza got eight hundred eighty k. Nice, and then The Matrix, eight hundred k. Bummer. It really <laughs> fell hard. That is a bummer. Thank God it it's below was not the needed. Pizza. I know. It's so sad. Thank God it was also on HBO Max, so hopefully they got some good numbers there. Yeah. We'll never Maybe. know the like extent of money-wise like how important those HBO Max films were, but yeah, yeah certainly in the box office, it didn't look too good for that film. Yep. We've got some box office predictions, and by box office predictions, I mean not really, because we... <laughs> It's just the scream second weekend and no way home six. Well, do you think here it is? That's the question is like, which one will take first? Exactly. It's very close. This is going to be scream second weekend, which is the biggest drop percentage wise for a movie typically. And it's no way home six weekend, which means the drop percentage wise won't be great. So they both could sell around the 13, 12, 13 million mark, maybe 14 if they try really hard. It's anyone's game. I'm not going to make it. Well, I guess I should pick one so we can bet. You pick one and I'll just take the other because I don't have a horse in this race. Okay, I guess well, you going to go with Spider-Man. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with Spider-Man. And I'll go see Scream this weekend to spite you. <laughs> I'll go see Spider-Man again to spite you. <laughs> For what, like your fifth time? Jesus Christ. It would be my fourth time. That's still not, that's still a lot. Like, come on. I mean, I don't deny it, but. I love it. I take it back. Spencer seeing Endgame in theaters nine times is probably a lot. Yeah, that was that was wild. Because that's also like a whole three-hour event every single time. Yeah. But all right. We will now get into our top 10 films of 2021. And it was certainly a strange year for cinema. Like no other before it. Theaters did return. But then we also had the whole date and date thing. Things were hitting streaming that were supposed to be in theaters. Things were hitting streaming while they were in theaters. Things were hitting streaming like a week after theaters if they bombed. Mm-hmm. It was wild. But how did you feel about returning to the theaters and having that experience once again? I was glad to be back. I was just disappointed with the movies that I returned with, I would say. They just weren't 
great. It was just kind of a bad year for movies. Like looking at the top 10 that I wrote that we're going to go through. I only loved two of them and I only liked two other ones. And the rest of them were just either okay or the the best of the worst that ended up at the bottom of my top 10. <laughs> Which like, is it quite was not... sad that <laughs> in the top 10, you were like, huh, we have to do 10? I only have five. <laughs> yeah. Let me go figure out the rest of the list. <laughs> so my, my last five, I mean, a few of them weren't that hard because I did like some of them. But like the last, the very last one is one that was like, this was just okay to me, but it's the best of the rest of them. Of mm-hmm. the other ones now the problem is that i also have not seen all the movies that came out last year i have not seen licorice pizza i've not seen tragedy macbeth i've not seen west side story i've not seen coda those are kind of the four big ones that i think i should see before award season and when i do see them uh maybe i will briefly update my list just for posterity and honesty on the show just right. briefly tell you where everything is at we could do because i imagine we always do this as well like we'll catch up on some of those films we missed mm-hmm. when we talk about them for the oscars yeah so we so can we fully can... update it on the oscar show yeah because i will have seen all four of those by then probably most mm-hmm. likely yeah i have not seen tragedy Macbeth either haven't seen the french dispatch mm-hmm. haven't seen the documentary summer of a soul oh apparently I supposed to be a really really either. good one didn't see that um spencer saw it like 30 times he really loved it oh really wow yeah. There was Come On, Come On. Uh, I'm probably going to skip that. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I was know, told it, that it was good, team. but gotcha. just too much on my plate, I guess. And that's just going to be one that slips through the cracks. Maybe I'll watch it in five years or something. <laughs> five years. It's one of those movies you just see and you're like, oh, I never saw this when it came out. And you just kind of go back to it. You know what I mean? Gotcha. I'm hoping it'll come back around at some point or it'll be on a streaming service soon. But yeah, it was in theaters for like a just one second and felt like it was in and out yep that was quite sad uh but then we also haven't seen like there's a whole host of international features that we haven't seen it's very there's been a lot of buzz about petite maman or whatever it is want to see titan titan yeah um the worst person in the world oh yeah i hear a lot of good things about really good so yeah we haven't seen a bunch of those films as well so those obviously won't be included i also include a little disclaimer about the movies that I'm just choosing not to include that technically were part of 2021 in a way, mm-hmm. but it was sort of like an extended 2020 year because so many of the films couldn't come out in 2020. And then mm-hmm. they extended the Oscar qualifying like period people. to be the first few months of 2021. So like all yeah. those films that would have been 2020 were like in those first few months. So those I'm not really going to include. Those are things like Nomadland, Minari, mm-hmm. Promising Woman, all that stuff. I'm like, yeah. It feels so distant by now that I'm like, ah, that's just consider it last year. Most of those did release in like, like if you go and you look it up, it'll say 2020 just because they came out. They had their premieres in 2020, even though mm-hmm. they didn't have like popular releases until 2021. That's kind of how I look at it is like if it had its its major release uh, in or even though it had its major release in 2021, if it had its like actual premiere in 2020 because it's an Oscar push. Right. That it shouldn't be counted but also there were like there's one movie in my honorable mentions that did come out in 2021 like for sure but it was like march and that was pretty close and i think it got pushed it was another one that got pushed so i thought you know i i'll just leave it in honorable mentions gotcha but it's the yeah. only one like if you look at all the other ones that came out in that time period that weren't big oscar movies that had also had premieres in 2020 
there were like none that came out then that I would have probably put in my top 10. Of course, the first few months of any year is going to be a very dry period for like good movies. That is definitely true. Yep. But yeah, so with that stuff out of the way, it seems like we can get into our honorable mentions. Wait, Ryan, how was your return to the theater? Oh, thanks for asking. It was good. I enjoyed it. It was like kind of mixed though, because I feel like the gap between people being in theaters because of the pandemic, everyone was just in their Mm -hmm. homes watching stuff and people don't know how to act anymore. (laughs) I don't know if they ever really did, but they don't know how to act for sure now because they feel like, oh, it's just like I'm in my living room again. But no, you have a whole bunch of other people in the theater with you. Like be respectful. Don't be such a schmuck trying to have side conversations or comment on the film. Or going on your phone, which you know bends me out of shape. Very upsetting to have those few instances where I was like, dang, I don't miss that. But being in the theater, I mean, having the high-quality picture that can't get matched anywhere else, the high-quality sound that can't get matched anywhere else, and the communal experience. Mm -hmm. Mm, So good. So I'm glad to be back for sure. Yeah, the phone stuff does not bug me as much as the guy who screamed Spider-Man dies. In our viewing of Spider-Man No Way Home. I know, which I just don't get it. Like, my guy, why? And it also, it wasn't even true, which I think is hilarious. Like he said, guys, watch this gag. I'm going to go in and just say some random thing to piss him off. It was in the movie anyway, so we knew. Yeah, it was literally, like if he did it at the beginning of the movie, we'd have been like, wow, what an asshole. What if he does die? Yeah. But it was literally the end of the movie. We're like, yeah, obviously he's not going to fucking die. What are you, an idiot? <laughs> For real. You didn't even like, do it well. He just didn't want to get thrown out at the beginning of the movie. I guess. Well, it was some dude who just like walked in, right? Like he was, I guess, passing by the theater and then walked in for a second and left. Because I don't, because it's not I like he it was, got up and okay. walked away. I, I didn't see sense. I thought it was somebody sitting all the way in the back. But it could have been somebody who walked in because the the doors entering in were also behind us. Yeah, but also it, it's the theater; it gets elevated in the back. I thought it was coming from behind me and up, so I thought it was somebody in the back. But it could have been somebody walking by, being an asshole. Yeah, and it's maybe me. he just didn't know what time the movie was at, and he was just like, "Oh, looking at Spider Man. Spider Man dies." Yeah, that would maybe. probably make a lot more sense. I just don't know what makes a person want to do something like that. Just be an asshole to a whole theater of people who are like, trying to have like, no a great reason. experience. There's no reason. And he didn't even, like, you don't even stay to see what came of it. Like, he just said it and then left. You don't even get anything out of that. Like, if you're a twisted person that gets enjoyment out of ruining experiences for other people, you didn't even get to see the experience ruined. You just left. Makes no sense. Anyway, thankfully, most people are not like that. Um, So, overall, the return to the theaters was really great. Yeah, it was all right, yeah. Just disappointing, I suppose. We can move on to our honorable mentions. Do you have a list of honorable mentions? I definitely do. All right, share them. Let me see what you got. So my honorable mentions. I'm starting with West Side Story. Which Whoa, you, you saw seen. it? I did. It didn't make the top 10? It did not because and I was wrestling with it, and you'll see why soon enough why it didn't exactly make it. But yeah, it, it is still really well done. I mean, Spielberg is absolutely a master. And the way that he moves the camera is unmatched and putting that in a musical setting is great. So it was a lot of what you would want to see in a musical like that. A lot of the like strengths and weaknesses in terms of the narrative, of course, carries over from what you would remember from the original 
movie adaptation. But there's a lot of updates that he makes to the story, which I think help it a lot. Like they add in this new character that Rita Marino plays. Um, and Isn't she just playing the old man, but as a woman? Well, yeah, but there's a lot more to that role. Okay, good. Like cool. the relationship with Tony is much more fleshed out and like her advice to him and essentially how she stands in for like that overall theme of these warring gangs that are hating on each other without even really knowing each other. And she's like sort of that bridge because she was able to find love with someone of the other community in the mm. same way Tony is trying to do so now. But of course she didn't have the support previously and she still doesn't really. Um, so it's interesting how they expand that role and give it to her. Uh, so it's gracing her back in the story. Rita Moreno yeah. wins another best supporting actress for West Side Story, but it's <laughs> a different character. What, like sixty years apart or whatever? That'd be yeah. gnarly. Um, but yeah, I think overall a lot of the updates they did make were successful. Uh, there were some changes they made that, which he had to do in order to like make sure that it wasn't a carbon copy of the original stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, that I don't know how well executed it was mm -hmm. like there were some changes like the very ending i don't think had the same emotional punch as the uh 1961 version but it's still a really solid movie it's spielberg it is so beautiful so well done and a lot of the performances are also great like there's a scene of the two actresses rachel ziegler and ariana debose singing at each other and they're both crying and it's crazy that that was like actually them doing that stuff um really good so definitely worth a watch i know you'll get around yeah. to it at some point but definitely an honorable mention for me i will definitely check it out soon it's, it's probably at the second top of my list like i want to see pta's movie the most and west side story the second most and then tragedy macbeth and then coda i'll get to coda eventually but definitely gotta knock out those theater ones quick before they're gone for sure uh zach snyder's justice league i'm putting that on the list which I had there before Whedon, but now it serves as a an FU to Whedon because this mm. is the movie we should have gotten, and it's so good. I mean, four hours of seeing Zack Snyder's original vision come to life. The story behind the film getting made as well is like pretty much historic, and so that alone gives it this quality to it that's like, this is just so fantastic. But the film itself is so well done. And despite the yeah. fact that we already like knew the story, seeing how when it gets fleshed out in certain parts and certain things are tweaked and certain things are given a bit of a makeover, how much that can elevate the film. Like that was also such a cool, interesting thing to see and examine as a viewer. So that one I really, really love. It's also like the last time we're going to get to see that group of actors together at all. And then most of those group of, ac of those actors inhabiting those roles at all since we're losing Pat Fleck. Henry Cavill's probably never come back. So Fish is probably never coming back at all. Yeah, I'm sure. We've got the Flash and we've got Wonder Woman. Exactly. And we do have Aquaman. Oh, I guess the reason is still kicking. So half half. but yeah, half of them are donezo after this. So it in that way, again, it gives it like this historic quality. And I'm glad we got a great Justice League movie before it all got taken down. Yep. My next one is The Rescue. Have you heard of this film? Never heard of it. It is a documentary on Nat Geo. You can find it on Disney Plus. And it's about the search and rescue of that boys soccer team in Thailand that got lost oh, in the cave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it got flooded. 
And it is absolutely insane how they had to go through and try to find these kids and then how they had to try to get them out. Like it's an amazing story. And they focus on the rescuers, which are a bunch of like a collection of random British cave divers who they're like weird and like social outcasts and whatnot. And they're obsessed with this one sport that's like weird and dangerous and isolating. Mm -hmm. But they're the only people like on the planet that are talented enough at this very peculiar skill in order to save these kids. And we see them trying to do that. And it's wild. And the documentary, they have like some real footage, but they do a lot of reenactments that put you in the cave. And that stuff is really well done. So that film, I think definitely check out. I think that's also going to be like in the Oscar race for the documentaries. So that's one to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. Other auto mention, I'm going to say Power the Dog, even though, I mean, we had talked about it before on the show when I had seen it and you hadn't. Wow. But didn't make the top 10. I did not. Possible Best Picture winner didn't even make the top 10. That is true. And there's some, like the cinematography, I think, deserves to win the Oscar for this. Like it is out of this world, not just in terms of visuals, but also how a lot of it is motivated by the story and by the characters. So I love that, and that's really well done. I also think the direction of it is incredibly skilled as well. Like, I understand, like, it feels like everything is meticulously planned and crafted and has intent behind it, and that's a lot of the subtlety that is in this film is intentional. But for me, on that first go-through, when it's very slow-moving, it's like, I don't know, is there, was there enough that we could latch on to in the first viewing, I feel like in the second viewing, that stuff will definitely be rewarding, but it was too much under the surface in that first viewing. I don't know. I think so. And I didn't go back and rewatch it. I don't know if I will. If it wins Best Picture, I guess we'll have to if we end up mm-hmm. you know, doing that talk. But um, for now, I'll have it as an honorable mention. Solid feature for sure, but I didn't have that emotional pool at any point. Yep. And my final honorable mention is Coda. Which oh, I it didn't recently. make top 10 either. It didn't, but it's a very pleasant film. Like, it absolutely could have taken one of the, like, top 10 slots for sure. I didn't have it there just because, I don't know, like, the biggest weakness you can say of the film is that you know exactly what's going to happen. Like, it is so adherent to storytelling principles that you just know, like, beat by beat what's about to happen next. But that doesn't detract from the movie at all because it's so wholesome and lighthearted and funny and moving. It's got a great cast to it, a great concept, like that idea of a like the coming-of-age story, but it's this girl that's a part of a family where she's the only hearing individual. Everyone else is deaf, and they rely on her for their family business, fishing and whatnot. But she wants to be a singer, and... <laughs> They obviously can't share in that passion of hers. They can't like understand that. And they also rely on her and need mm-hmm. her. So that's a great like dynamic, a great conflict that they have there. But so much of it is just like it's really heartwarming, that story. Um, and it's fun throughout. So it's definitely it could have definitely made the top ten. You should absolutely see it. And I hope it does get Oscar love. Because this was a film that came out way back. In Sundance, which is going on now, like the 2022 Sundance is happening now. Yeah, so that's how long making, ago it came out. I didn't even know about this, but I learned that one of the movies premiering at, Sun, premiering at Sundance is a uh, a British remake of Ikaru, really? which is a, a Kira Kurosawa movie, and uh, it sounds awesome. The Brits wanted to remake it, huh? 
Well, I mean, I think it's Americans making it, but it's it takes place in 1950s Britain. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> Interesting. Um, but yeah, this was definitely the success story of last year's Sundance when it got picked up by Apple TV. And I can see why. I mean, it is, it's a, I mean, a story that, again, you know what's going to happen, but I mean, I guess that speaks to how good certain storytelling elements are, but then also how well executed they were in this film because it was mm-hmm. well done. But yeah, that is my collection of honorable mentions. All right, time to time to blast through mine. My first honorable mention is The Last Duel. This Ooh. was one that I was really considering putting on the top 10 because it's just one of the only ones that I kind of liked. But instead, you decided to put the other Ridley Scott movie, House of Gucci, House of on your Gucci. top 10. Of, of, course, course, of course, yeah. <laughs> I was going to give uh, House of Gucci a dishonorable mention. <laughs> <laughs> just... Just to talk about how bad it was, but I thought I wouldn't, and then you brought it up, and now I have to. House of Gucci is <laughs> no, god awful, a, and this terrible. is the positive list. We got you're, right, you're right, you're right. Let's be positive. My honorable mention, last duel. Um, there's a lot of good things about it that give it this honorable mention, but there's just a lot of bad things about it that keep it off the top ten. It is uh, slow to get into, hard to get into. Uh, the character work is a little, the, the acting particularly is a little odd. At times. For who? For which one? Uh, Matt Damon a little bit. I liked him in the... I think so. He got better. It got better because the character got fleshed out because it was no longer from his perspective. When it was in Matt Damon's perspective, I was like, I don't think he's doing this role justice. And then in the second part, I was like, okay, he knows what he's doing. Okay. But it, it, on the first watch, when you don't know that's coming, it's very unnerving. Right. And I think maybe there is satisfaction in the fact that it does come back around, but it is still... Like the first forty minutes is that Matt Damon part, and that is the worst part of the movie. Like it's it's very hard to get through, and it's because you're learning all the facts of the story, so they can go through it very quickly in the recaps from the other perspectives. Mm-hmm. But it is just, oh, just it was god awful to sit through that first part because it was just so boring and right. so undramatic and just so ridiculous. But having looked back at the first part, knowing like the sort of truth of everyone else's perspectives, it probably would be better to watch it a second time. It just doesn't make top 10 for me. Gotcha. It just doesn't do it. I think I gave it a three and a half or a four. I think it was four. Reviewed it. I think I gave it a four. Yeah. I think a four is probably higher than I gave some of these movies, but I just don't think it makes the top 10 in terms of like how I like it. Gotcha. Another honorable mention was the suicide squad. Oh yeah. This one was really almost on the top 10. This it, this was hard to pick between some of the last few ones. I think it's a great movie. I think it's hilarious. I had a great time. But it's just not a top 10 movie, you know what I mean? It's just not like something I think of when I think of 2021 in great cinema. It is fun, and it is a fun popcorn flick, but it just did not, like, it did not wow me, I should say. It did make me laugh, and it did entertain me, but I was not. it wasn't like Gardens of the Galaxy where my heart is taken in this story. Or, like, I'm super invested in these characters. It was just a fun movie to watch. Eat some popcorn, too. And it's definitely rewatchable, which is what's great about it. It's mm-hmm. definitely a movie you can come back to, just have a good time. You don't have to worry about it. So, Suicide Squad is another honorable mention. After that was Matrix Resurrections. Really? Does, Wait, an honorable yes, mention? Yes. It does so many things right. And then just falls flat on so many other things. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Everything they do in like the first two thirds of the movie, other than 
Mr. Smith and <laughs> or Agent Smith and uh, Morbius is really good. Like it's it's pretty good. Like everything they do with his character being like stuck in the Matrix and being like thinking that he's a video game designer. Next level greatness. Like I loved it. I was engaged. I was having a great time. Then it just kind of goes off the rails in that last third. It kind of is bad at explaining things away and explaining how things work in this story world. It kind of takes the rules and throws them out to write new rules because they couldn't write around the old rules. And that does suck. But it is a lot of fun. And so it, it did get an honorable mention. It was one of the few times I enjoyed myself watching a movie, especially when I really didn't think I would like it. Nice. And the last one is Zack Snyder's Justice League. Hey, there you go. It's just a great movie. This was the one that I was considering putting on the top 10. I was considering putting on the top 10, but I decided not to because it came out in March. I still, I didn't consider like the 2020 films late really until April, like late April and then onward. Just because this was something that I'm pretty sure, yeah, it was supposed to come out in 2020, like for sure. And then got postponed along with a lot of other movies. And so I just, as much as I love it, I'm not going to consider it for the top 10, but it is a masterpiece. It's great. You should go see it. Everybody should go see it. It's very, 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 very good. Indeed. Like four hours. You can break it up in half if you need to, but definitely catch it out because it was great. All right. So now we can get into our top 10 and we're going to do the same way we did it that last time. We'll go through each of our 10 through six, then our five through two. And then we'll give our number one of 2021. So I can go ahead and start off with my number 10, which is the musical that was able to make it this year, In the Heights. God damn. I forgot yeah, about that In is the Heights. The one. So as you know, when we talked about it at length, I still really, really enjoyed it, despite the fact that we picked out a lot of the flaws that it very much does have. And... It honestly, in various portions of it, it is quite poorly directed. But I think the film overcomes that due to the quality of the songs. Lin-Manuel Miranda, I mean, his OG musical, right? Still amazing songwriting back then. Uh, the vibrancy of many of the musical numbers. There are some that are not up to par, but there are many. Yeah, what that... about the unvibrancy of the majority <laughs> of the musical numbers? Like the pool number or the... The well, I guess I like the dance club one. The uh, I guess the opening one was very unvibrant as well. It was just street. Well, I suppose that's the case. But again, I feel like that was a poorly executed way to try to keep like, oh, let's make Brooklyn or wherever it was that they were, Washington Heights, um, like that part of New York. What was wrong with you? (laughs) That part of New York in the Brooklyn, (laughs) in the in the Bronx. Oh, Heights (laughs) in the Heights. Yeah. I mean, how am I supposed to know? I'm a Florida kid. How am I supposed to know every neighborhood in New York? Do they know every neighborhood? You should know the one they named it after. I mean, that's true. And I did. Washington Heights. So Washington Heights. See, I wouldn't know that if it was too vibrant in the opening because I would have been looking at that instead of listening to the words. So it was a directorial choice to make sure sure we knew where we were. Not by the title, but by by the (laughs) lyrics in the song. But, I mean, yeah, there were some that definitely could have been better. But there were quite a few that I thought were great choices. Like the whole uh, Abuela song where she's in the tunnel and that's all lit up. Like, I like that a lot. I like the choice of having them dance on the side of the building, even though that wasn't as executed as well as it could have been. 
like there were a lot of great ideas that they had there and a lot of uh, again like there were very energetic musical numbers that they had which were accompanied by some great visuals carnival del barrio is still my favorite of all those songs and those carnival musical numbers del barrio. Ooh, you hit the rolled your r's on that one i'm really good at rolling my r's <laughs> i'm not carnival but still enjoyed it still enjoyed all those songs that was uh, a good one but it was very also unvibrant no man they had all the flags and they were dancing with the flags. flags with muted colors the only like <laughs> the only two that were like super vibrant was the club one before lights out and the abuela song and the abuela song is fantastic like through and through if the whole movie was like that abuela song it would probably be my number one because that abuela song is top tier musical film right for sure and again like i can see like i can see the choice that they were trying to make there like the creative choice of wanting to balance out like the vibrancy that you would expect in musicals, but also being like, oh, here's the actual authentic way this would look. But yeah, I don't think they balance it out well enough because um, there were too many muted colors. But for the most part, like some of the songs, I don't think it detracted from it too much. And I did like some of the surrealist elements that they incorporated, like drawing on the screen when they were doing 96,000 um, and dancing on the side of a building. Mm. But yeah, I really like that. I also particularly like some of the themes that they had incorporated in there, the dreams, Swinitos, and how like everyone in the ensemble, well, most people in the ensemble had particular dreams that they were chasing after, and you got to see that. Um, and then also those themes of community and home. And particularly, we, we also, in our, like, in the Heights episode, we rewrote the ending of it on the fly to make it more connected to the actual themes and character arcs they were going for. But I do so like, again, that overall idea of what was our being a part again? of the community? Well, I can't spoil it, but it was about if you remember, it was about a particular mural, and like You're what right. was on the mural, like the inciting incident for his decision that he makes. Um, yeah, we were like that should have been this other thing, and it definitely should have. I don't know why it wasn't. Like it seems so obvious because it was also part of the the actual play. I think, like Sean told us, yeah, that was actually part of the play. So yeah. there's no reason they shouldn't have done it, but still. Despite all that, it's such an enjoyable experience as well. Like we, I went to go see it in theaters. Did we, did you and I go see it together? I don't remember. I think I might've just seen it with Alexa, just the two of us. Because I remember seeing that and I remember seeing it later on HBO Max, not too long after. And I really enjoyed it both times. I mean, again, ultimately it's an uplifting, toe-tapping, head-bopping film. So it is my number 10. And in my number nine spot, which I won't talk too much about it now because I know it'll be higher up on your list, but it is Drive My Car. We were able to see this international film out of Japan, um, and it is three hours long, but mm-hmm. it's so incredibly well-paced that you really don't feel that. Like, it is slow-moving. It is restrained. I mean, sure, but... After that first half hour, it just picks up. The well, first it half hour is because it takes a half an hour before the credits to appear. And, <laughs> That's true. And I looked at the credits and I went... The, the credits? I thought we were just going to skip those. It's been <laughs> half an hour. I know. Yeah, that whole prologue section was interesting. But even then, I was engrossed in it. Mm-hmm. So, And there's a lot of really fascinating choices he makes in terms of characters, like their idiosyncrasies, but also their dy- dynamics with each other yeah. that I think makes it stand out. The reason why it's so low on my list is it was a long movie. It was late. I just came off like a 12-hour set had five hours of sleep the night before. Mm-hmm. And towards the end of the film, they went to some place that was snowy. 
And so it was so bright on screen and my eyes just wanted a little bit of a rest. And you kind of, so I kept closing them a bit and I was going in and out of sleep. Uh, and sadly, that was like the emotional catharsis of the film. Yeah. <laughs> so I wasn't able to definitely give it another watch. I think it will go higher up on your list if you yeah. do. Again, I believe so as well. It's just sadly, I wasn't able to fully like give myself over to that uh, ending of the film. But all the bits of it that I was able to see, loved it a lot. Like so, so good. And I'm sure you'll be able to comment more on that mm-hmm. later on. All right, yep. my number eight film, which I don't even know if you've heard of this, is Mass. No, I've heard of Mass. I didn't see it, though. Did you watch it? Yeah. Um, you should try to watch it because sadly, it's like flaw flying under the radar even with the it's flaw it's flaw it's uh, <laughs> even even with the award season it's flying under the radar blue yeah. under the radar um so i think it really deserves a lot more attention it's a single setting essentially that i just do has love movies that are like that yes and it where it's like based on plays that are single setting because mm-hmm. those are also my favorite plays yeah i could get behind i could get behind this movie yeah, it's so good because it shows you that you can have just a small cast, single location, and it's just them having a conversation around a table, but it can still be a powerful, riveting story. And it also has some sensational performances in there, which, again, I don't know how these are getting overlooked in the award season. But mm-hmm. for y'all in the audience, I don't know. It's about two sets of parents that meet in the basement of a church, and they talk about how one of their sons is responsible for the death of the other family's son. And they're trying to work through why this happened, how this happened, how they can deal with it going forward. And it is so incredible. It's also so devastating and heart-wrenching. There are three monologues in here that are, number one, like an actor's dream. Like These can be used in any audition you go into because they're so solid. But they are also just so painful, like so sad. It totally guts you. And one of them specifically, like the moment it starts, you kind of know where it's going to go. But even when it gets said, like you're still not prepared for it. It still just smashes you in the heart. So, so good. So emotionally exhausting, but cathartic mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. It's definitely one I want to look out for. I got to figure out how to watch it. Did you go to the theaters to watch it's it? It's on, no, it didn't see in the theaters. It was on Prime. I saw it on Prime. It was like for it? $2 to rent. I might do that, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's worth it. It's not that much, so. Yeah. Quite good. All right, my number seven was one of your honorable mentions. Oh. The Last Duel. Oh. Indeed, yeah. Even though I I rated it higher than you. Very interesting. Well, I think we both had four stars. Did we? I thought you had a three and a half. Nah, I said four. And thinking on it more, like, since then, I really like it. Like, I love the structure of it. Mm-hmm. You know, being able to see it from each character's perspectives. And I also love, because, I mean, that's sort of like you can do a spot the difference game with how their performances change or the way mm-hmm. things are conveyed. Is that changed. is very fun to do, yeah. But it also, be through these three different, like, chapters where you see it through these different perspectives, we get to shade in each of these characters a lot better. As you were saying with Matt Damon, like, you get to flesh him out more as it goes along by seeing not just how he's perceiving himself, but how other people are perceiving him. So he goes from, in that first chapter, he's like this noble man that's getting all this flack for no reason from everyone around him. He's got bad luck. All these people are doing wrong, horrible things to him. And so he's like blaming all the world. And it's like, this should not happen to me. But in other 
perspectives from Adam Driver's section and then Jodie Comer's section. You get to see him being like just this pathetic, whiny brat. And then him also being this cruel, mean husband who thinks of himself as being way more noble than he actually is. So I really like that part of it. I also love, I mean, it's heavy subject matter, of course, but it's also quite timely. And I think the commentary that they do is effective, even though this is like, what, 800 years ago or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And that also, I mean, this medieval setting, Ridley Scott knows how to do that quite well, like building up the atmosphere. So in a lot of ways, I loved it. And then also that duel, that duel, that famed duel. It was incredible, like literally edge of edge my of seat. my seat it was so exciting it could go either way like i don't know the story i don't know how history works and history is often <laughs> very cruel it could go either way exactly and so i was fully awesome. invested and that's how i knew the movie worked because i agreed with you like that first part matt damon section i was like oh no i don't know if this works but over time you get to accept that but then also at the very very end you're fully invested in what's going to happen here so i knew it worked and i'm putting it number seven last duel and finally, my number six, finally for like this section, it is Belfast, which I, again, the more I think about the movie, the more I adore it. You and I were able to catch it in theaters before it bounced immediately out of there. But it is such a delightful, feel-good, charming, nice film. It's like 97 or something minutes, so it's nice and crisp, breezy, goes by quick. And it's this slice-of-life format which I think is done really well because we're seeing it from the perspective of this 10-year-old kid played by Jude Hill. And all the performances in this were great, by the way, um, which I'm sure they are going to get love at the Oscars. Deservedly so, I think. But we see his coming-of-age story against the backdrop of like Protestant, Catholic, Civil War in this neighborhood. And I just think it was very fascinating to balance out him going through his life, trying to do like what kids just do in their day-to-day lives like getting up mm-hmm. to a little trouble having this crush on somebody at school but then also having to deal with like his things going on with uh mm-hmm. again that neighborhood falling apart around him and him not really understanding it which I also think is an interesting commentary on like it is so senseless that a 10 year old kid sitting talking with his cousin could be like this is how stupid it is because you can't tell who belongs to which side just from the names like that little scene that they had Mm-hmm. Um, was great but yeah like the balance between that stuff and him just living out his life all the stuff with him and his grandparents Judy Dench and Kieran Hines oh, that was Judy absolutely Dench, lovely so I know they were fantastic in that I also love Jamie Dornan as the father and Katrina mm-hmm. Balf as the mother she had a lot to do in this oh yes it was did. really really good Um, them like holding on to wanting to stay in their home where again, Bell, where Buddy, the main kid, is known by everyone and loved by everyone, but it's again getting Hello, torn apart. Buddy. Hi, buddy. Um, Hi, buddy. That I think was really, really great. And also, I think the black and white cinematography is easy on the eyes. I don't think it's like the best thing we've ever seen before, but it's mm-hmm. quite good. And I love a lot of the choices Kenneth Branagh makes, especially in respect to the actors, like letting their performances just play out to yeah. linger on a lot of close-ups as they just are going at it which is great and i also love like one of my top scenes of the year is the whole the everlasting love scene where jamie dornan singing that song um and then gets into the dance with katrina balf oh, i thought that was great up your eyes 
I don't know the rest of the words. The only <laughs> but yeah, that's a great like pick me up for what just happened before in that movie. But it's also a great way to show like these parents who are often feuding in the film. They have this connection that is still so strong and can triumph over all the issues that they're getting faced with, all the financial stuff and the the religious divide that's going on there. That he can still find these little moments of love and happiness. I think that was great. And also love, of course, the ways that we see like the splashes of color that come in when he's watching movies and that's like his happy place as well for the little kid. So all in all, Belfast, very charming movie and I was charmed. Excellent. All right, now it's time to do my 10 through six. My number 10 is, this might be a bit of a surprise. It's The Last Duel. I have changed my mind. Having talked about it and thought about it, it has usurped my previous number 10, which was The Power of the Dog. Dang, great. Just thinking about it, I think I did just like The Last Duel just more than The Power of the Dog. I think The Power of the Dog was a little slow. It did, much like The Last Duel, it did get better as it went on, just not as good as The Last Duel did. And you reminding me of how awesome that last, that actual <laughs> last duel was. How I was literally on the edge of my seat watching the movie in the theater. It was just exhilarating. Were you with me for that or was I alone watching that? I don't think you and I saw that one together. I honestly can't remember. No, I don't. We didn't. We did not. So I was I was alone in the theater. I went by myself and was still on the edge of my seat, excited, very, very thrilled, very just. It was awesome. It was amazing. It, it was so much better than the House of Gucci. I I am uh, I don't know I just guess I just the the positives are so positive that they overtake the negatives in my mind. Wow. Which the power of the dog does not quite do. They're about balanced in the power of the dog. Like there's a lot of good in it, but it's also a lot of bad, and they're kind of balancing each other out in it. And wow, so stunning. the last dog has taken the last duel has taken the power of the dog's place. A last minute switch, crazy. Last minute switcheroo. My number nine is a movie that I don't think you caught up on. I don't think I think it's one that you missed that you said you wanted to watch but I think you just never got around to it. But let me know if you did see it. It was The Mitchells versus the Machines. I knew you were going to say that. And no, I did not see it. Oh my god. I I swear to god. I'm 90% confident that if you did watch it, it would make your top 10. Really? Wow. I really think you should check it out before the Oscars. It is fun, it is bright. And it is hilarious. Like there are moments where I am just bursting out laughing, dude. Even though I really didn't expect it, it's hard to balance the humor because half of it is from, like, half of the humor is from the dad's perspective, where it is boomer humor about Gen Z, and then the other half is the Gen Z humor making fun of the boomers. And I was like, how are they going to balance this in the way that I can actually think it's funny and not just stupid? And they did it. <laughs> it made me laugh. Both <laughs> of their humors made me laugh. Like it's a little iffy in the beginning, but it definitely gets better as it goes along. In the absurdity of it is definitely very like interesting to think about about how just crazy weird the story is and how it is grounded by this heartfelt story between two of the characters. I don't want to spoil too much of it. I'm trying to spoil it for you because you haven't seen it, but mm -hmm. the heartfelt the heart at the core of it is just so emotional and so brilliant that I absolutely love it. The performances are all great. Danny McBride is the father and he's hilarious. <laughs> he is he's just a riot. I was having a great time. There's a lot of good jokes that they put in there there's a lot of moments i think i almost cried at a certain point like it was that emotional wow. i really think you should give it a shot before oscar season i don't think it's gonna win best animated future i think Encanto will probably take yeah, it it seems like it 
But I think Mitchell's versus the Machines deserves it. I think it was an excellent, excellent movie that I had a really fun time with that I should rewatch soon because I haven't seen it since it came out in the summer. But really, really like that one. I think we should all give some time for it, especially because I didn't think it was going to be good. Like, hearing about what it was going to be. I think the, the original title was Connected, and I remember reading about it and being like, oh, kind of just seems okay. Robots take over the world, and it's about technology. But it just blew me away by how actually good it was. And that's why it made my number nine. My number Whoa. eight is one that I know will not be on your list. It's Last Night in Soho. Yeah. <laughs> I had a really good time with it. It was the first movie since the Oscars that I sat down in the actual theaters and enjoyed at the time. So it was like from the Oscars until last night. So I did not sit down in a theater and have a good time. That was the first one. Unless I saw French Dispatch first. I don't remember which one I saw first. But that was one of the first ones, for sure. Uh, I like the way that Edgar Wright is using his quirkiness to sort of blend into the horror genre. I like the things he does with the faceless people, even though it is kind of stupid at the end. I do yeah. like, uh, <laughs> I do like the idea of it and the horror of it. I like everything he does with all the time switching, all the, like the play switching stuff in the 60s is phenomenal. Like It's awesome. That whole middle part is just so much fun to watch and it's so great. Um, the mystery looking back on it is very on the nose, even though I did not guess the twist until it happened. Like I, I will say it did kind of go over my head, but he, looking back on it, it is fairly obvious. And I think I'm just a lesser man for not guessing it. I think many other people did guess. You're it. fine. It's okay to not guess it. I am, but a fool no. in, in a smart man's world. Sometimes it's better to just be swept away by it. That is true. Shocked. And I was swept away by it. I loved everything to do with the period styling of it. I loved everything to do with the characters. I liked just, I'm a very stylism forward kind of guy when it comes to movies. I like movies that bring stylism to the forefront. And this was definitely one that did it. Like, it's very hard to top a very stylistic movie for me. But we will see six of them that do so after <laughs> this one. But yeah, this is probably... Uh, looking at all the rest of them, stylistically, it's probably the second most kind of out there and idiosyncratic and unique. And it did make the top 10 because of that stylism and because of the Edgar Wright sort of flair that he added to it that did make it more engaging and more watchable than it could have been if a lesser director had taken the helm. There were flaws with it. Again, it was not a great year for movies. <laughs> if this were any other year, I doubt this movie would make the top 10. But because it was such a sort of lackluster year, it did make it in. So props to Edgar Wright for making a movie that I sat through and kind of enjoyed. Nice. As opposed to most of the other movies this year that were pretty bad. That's my number eight. My number seven is The Green Knight. As much oh, as I really, yeah, I kind of dog on this movie because you did. there were points of it that were pointless and were just kind of. I don't, I don't think pretentious is the right word, but sort of like embellishing the original story for emphasis of feelings over actual narrative storytelling, which isn't necessarily a flaw, but it was definitely very much like too excessive to a certain point to where I'm watching the movie and I'm like, okay, where is the story going? Like I've read the short story and this is very much like you're just trying to get me in a feeling here and it's hard to pinpoint what the feeling is because it's not very clear. It's very, very subtle, if anything at all. But overall, 
cinematography is gorgeous. The way it's shot is gorgeous. It does put me in different feelings at different times. The CGI is pretty good for a movie that is this kind of like low budget. Honestly, yeah. Like there isn't a lot of CGI in it, but when it's in there, it's in there. Uh, I did like the performances. Dev Patel was really good. Very sexy. Uh, I think I just had, I think this was another movie this year that came out. Maybe it's just a trend, but it's just one of the ones that just got better as it went along. I think I got more and more engaged. And then just the last 20 minutes are just nonstop great. It is, yeah, that is true. flawless in my perspective. Like I think, cause that's where it dips back into the original story a little bit more and tells like a narrative story instead of just trying to go for feeling. And I think when it does that, because you've had so much feeling up until that point, instead of narrative storytelling that it does hammer home the, the sort of uh, plot that is the sort of like theme that is trying to hammer down on you. And I think that is cool. I really digged it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, maybe, no, I did dog it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it was maybe an oversight not to try to rewatch it at some mm-hmm. point recently. Because certainly, I also would want to throw it on the honorable mention because it's a film that I very much admire, but mm-hmm. didn't really understand watching it the first time. And I yeah. knew that going through it, that I was like, "There's definitely things here that I'm just not picking up on," and it is affecting my enjoyment of it. Yeah, yeah. but as you said, I mean, like the, the end, boat. the ending, they definitely did hammer home those points, and I was like, "Yes, this is." exact sort of thing i was looking for and hoping would be throughout the rest of it it was always like very interesting very mesmerizing but yeah it didn't have some sort of narrative hook for a lot of those moments or at least to me on the surface like didn't have enough of that maybe going back through it we can see more of the symbolism that's scattered throughout but yeah on the first watch through which was the only one i did for it um couldn't pick up on that but it is one that i think when you see it a second time you'll definitely be able to appreciate it much more but yeah all right yeah. so your that was your number what seven or six seven yep that was my seven my number six i'm actually gonna switch around with my number five looking oh my at gosh it, this man um, the fluid I have to. list he's got going this was very kind of last minute and i thought i was solid on my five and six but thinking about it the way i'm going to describe my current number six kind of trumps why i like my number five so it should supersede it so my new number six is Dune. Gotcha. Uh, I know that's going to be higher on your list. Uh, I did have a good time with it. I did think it was beautiful in the way that it was designed. And I thought the CGI is probably the best, if some of the best CGI I've seen so far in my life. Like it is incredible what they're doing there. Uh, it is disappointing compared to the book. It is very much more action heavy as opposed to political heavy, which is kind of my forte in a movie of this kind of grandeur is focusing on the politics, but having action to sort of beef it up and, and create those consequences that the politics have. And this was very much more of a, we are at war kind of movie, even though the book is more of, we are at debate, at least the part of the book that they're trying to cover is like, we are in a debate. And then the, the movies like we are at war right now. And then it continues into the war, but overall it was still enjoyable like it was an enjoyable thing it it was a fun time i had a great time sitting there watching it picking out the little things like oh this is from the book this is from the book this is from the book things like that i think the movies that were based on books that i read and then saw i guess there's just two of them but they did end up being lower than what they probably would have had i not read the books like dune probably would have been a lot higher had i not 
gone anywhere near the books. And so would Nightmare Alley. I feel like I would have liked Nightmare Alley a lot more had I not already read the book. Because I don't think we got a chance to talk about Nightmare Alley on here, but right. everything is different. Everything is different from the mob. Novel. Is Nightmare Alley on your list? No. No? Not even on honorable mentions. Dang, that's crazy. I thought about it, and I just couldn't do it. It was so different from the book in we'll such a to... disappointing way that it did affect my viewing of it. I should watch it a second time. Put a pin in that. I will put, put a, a pin, pin in, in it, and we'll talk about it later. We but will. Dune, Dune is very much... it. I feel like, to me, the book was very much like a thinking, like a critical thinking kind of thing, and the movie did not feel as much like that. It kind of felt more like a popcorn flick meets sort of uh trying to make you think as much as it can for being a popcorn flick which i do give it credit for but because it tried to balance the two without leading one way or another it did sort of fall flat for me i feel like if it either gone full popcorn flick just action balls to the wall crazy or completely cerebral because you look at blade runner 2049 it does have action in it but it is a very cerebral very thinking kind of movie in the way that Dune wasn't, and that's why I love Blade Runner 2049 for Denis' work. But Dune tried to do the tightrope walk that is both, that the book also does not try to do. Like, there's action in it, but it does not rely on it, and I feel like Denis did not... I think he fell off the tightrope. I don't think he was able to to balance both gotcha. very well. So that is my number. It is still the reason it is so high is because it was enjoyable and it was a great theater experience. And I will definitely watch it again someday because it was great. But that is my number six, dude. Gotcha. All right. My number five is a film you did not see. I don't think many people saw. But it is Stillwater. Oh, is, yeah. I did not see that. Yeah. You really like that for. I did. Reasons. I'm telling you because I saw it way long ago and I was thinking because i'm always wondering i'm like okay is this gonna be a movie that'll end up being on the top 10 and when i saw it i was like it very well could be and then all throughout it ended up being one that stuck by uh and it's the film that is loosely based on that whole amanda Co- amanda knox case amanda cox <laughs> hey oh <laughs> completely unrelated but um yeah amanda knox where she was an american student arrested for a murder of her friend i was in yes. italy here it's the same thing but it's in france um, don't know why <laughs> yeah they didn't really hide it too much but matt damon is the one who plays like that amanda knox standin's father he's a stoic roughneck from oklahoma who has spent like most of her adolescence in jail and then before that was spending most of her childhood in a drunken stupor so the relationship is rocky but he's trying to make it better by visiting her in france a lot so every now and then he'll go and do it. Uh, but there's like a moment where her case has stalled, but then she thinks there's a lead, but the lawyers and police won't pick up on it. So he's going to take it on himself to do his own investigations. But he does not know French. He does not know the culture. And so he tries to, he ends up getting help from this French theater actress who's a single mom that he just happens to encounter. And she ends up helping him out in his endeavor. And that person is played by Camille Cotin. Or Katin. She is great. She was in House of Gucci, and I told you during that thing, like she was one of the best parts of House of Gucci. Because because of this film, I love her so much. I thought she was great in this film. Like absolutely just magnetic, like flawlessly natural in that role. And so 
this film, which by the way was directed by Tom McCarthy, who did Spotlight, which I never saw. Oh. Did you end up seeing that? I did, and I really like Spotlight. You really liked it? Then maybe you should check this out. Cause maybe I should. If it's, it's interesting sort of that Spotlight... Style. I'm trying to remember, because Spotlight won Best Picture, and I'm trying to remember, because I thought something else deserved it more. But that was so long ago. I was like 14 or 15. Right. But I did really like Spotlight, and I thought mm-hmm. like it was one of the ones that year that deserved Best Picture. It just was not my favorite of that Your year. Your personal but, yeah, favorite, yeah. I would definitely check out Stillwater because I did really like Spotlight. And I think you should watch it. I will. I will at this point because I really enjoy this film. So hopefully I'll feel the same about that. But this film, I mean, it's interesting. It's like in two halves, just two different tones. One half of it is this thriller where it's Damon's character trying to exonerate his daughter. And then the other half is the family drama where he sort of gets a second chance to be a father to Camille Cotin's character's daughter because she's the single mom. She has a very young daughter. And then so he gets to sort of be that father figure to her. And that's the part of the film that really just absolutely shines. Like it's just a little domestic drama of them going about their days and it gets like slice of lifey. And I just loved it. Like it was such a good heartwarming dynamic that they Mm -hmm. had. It was so solid. And then there's a moment in the film where these two elements crash together. Those two halves of the film merge. And for me, that's when I knew it absolutely worked because in the same way, like last duel, I was on the edge of my seat, this film, I was on the edge of my seat for that because I was okay. my delight at everything that came before it just turned to pure anxiety. And that just kept going and kept going until we reached the end of the film. Mm-hmm. So that I really, really enjoyed. Um, the very, well, I don't know what you say. Matt Damon's on a roll for you, huh? He was, yeah. I was amazed seeing that because these are two roles that like he's not getting any real recognition for, but yeah, he happened, happened to be in two films that I really very much enjoyed. So, Stillwater, go give it a chance. All right, What's my number, number four. Number four. Is Spider-Man No Way Home? Whoa, I thought it'd be higher. I mean, it is pretty. I will be, it's funny. This very next film, we'll have to get more of your opinion on it. But number four, Spider-Man No Way Home. I mean, you know the grievances that I have with it, like the whole sure. spell thing, and also the central mission of them trying to reform the villains that come from other universes that already died, and now you're trying to send them back there without understanding any of the consequences that is like the most irresponsible thing you could do and if this is the film that's trying to give him the lesson of responsibility i just didn't think that worked i think it was just a big dissonance there but i mean come on i saw this film three times in theaters it was by far the best theater experience when we were there on that you saw it four times in theaters i'm about to see the fourth time soon but yes and i I have no problems with doing that because I love it each time. Even on the third viewing, I was still smiling for like half of the movie. When that moment happens, I was just smiling the rest of the way through because it's so well executed. We already talked about it. Like there was a narrative purpose to it as well. So beyond just seeing them, I mean, there was a purpose. There was a reason that elevated it so much. Spoilers, Ryan. I mean, look, you already know by now. Everybody knows. knows. I mean, everybody there's no way. Because yeah. Andrew Garfield is like openly talking about it now. Yeah. Everybody so, knows. Yeah. It's but, been four weeks and it's like the biggest movie in the world right now. So everybody yeah. knows. Like, I don't know how you, what rock are you living under? But I mean, this is the culmination of all these Spider-Man franchises and it was executed so incredibly well. There's so many ways it could have gone wrong, but it mm-hmm. thankfully did not. We got an extremely satisfying entry into the Spider-Man film canon. And this is literally like, this is something I can't believe it exists. Like it still boggles my mind that something like this exists. Cause I had mm-hmm. like, this is something I wrote in my 24 in 
in 2014 when I was like 14 or something. We just started high school and I started my little story idea journal. One of the things I wrote in there was a Spider-Verse thing, like an adaptation of the Spider Wars episodes from the animated series that would have like all the major little Spider-Men that they had, like the armored spider and all that. Mm-hmm. And Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and whoever the new Spider-Man would be. Because at that point, we didn't know if it was going to be Tom Holland or I think Aza Butterfield was the other guy that they were looking at. No, it was somebody else. But it was oh, really? it was a person who was now a nobody because he wasn't Spider-Man. Tragic. But I think yeah, Aza Scott. Butterfield was in contention, but never seriously. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was like down to him and Tom for the final two. But no, I guess it was not. Tom and some other guy. I wish I knew his name because I feel bad because he <laughs> would be the most famous man in the world right now otherwise. It's true. But alas, every time, every well, time I you. watch, this alas is so funny. Him. Every time I watch interviews where they're like, "It's the producers of Spider-Man that talk about like Tom's audition." They're like, "Yeah, he could do flips. <laughs> he could go in and he could just flip on command, and he was really good at flips." And it just kind of seems like they picked him over the other guy because Tom Holland could do flips and gymnastics because he had ballet training. And I just it makes me feel so bad. Like, what if that other guy was like a superior actor, but he couldn't do flips? That would be, man, he's probably been in gymnastics training all this time, waiting for Tom Holland to retire <laughs> so he could try to get in there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, this like this was something that 14-year-old me would be like, this is the greatest fantasy I could have about bringing these characters together in one movie. And then we actually got that. And, they, and it was good. It was great. So that is why it is number four for me. A great experience. My number three is Nightmare Alley. And I can't believe that you didn't like it at Whoa. all. Whoa. Whoa. I can't believe. So. And you saw I, it. I didn't expect it. Yeah, I saw it. I didn't expect to like this film. Because I remember kind of dreading going to it. Because it was a late screening at like 1030. That's a long movie. And I was tired. And I again, wasn't thinking that it was going to be all that great. Because the Oscar buzz has sort of deflated. But. When I t- I was thoroughly engaged the entire way through, like every minute of those two hours and 30 minutes, I was into it. Like, I think the atmosphere that Del Toro created through the production design, the costuming, cinematography, all that stuff, it was so gorgeous, so immersive. I mean, I was in it. Any shot that involves snow, mm-hmm. like, could be taken as one of the, like, just screenshot and that's, boom, one of the best shots of 2021. Yeah. So that I loved a lot. And I also, which this is more of a credit to the author of the original novel, which I guess this can be where you talk about the differences maybe um, without like spoiling too much, I guess. But the premise of having like this con man, this who ends up a con artist, getting into the carnival, you know, that whole hotbed of tricksters, people that are literally trying to trick people. I mean, it's mm-hmm. for their entertainment, right? And yeah. I understand that. But this guy who ends up there in his order to fit right in is able to hone his craft and find out even more ways to con people and find even better ways to monetize it like i think that is such a fascinating premise and then him carrying all that out and like getting lost in his own like mythos of oh i am able to control all of this like i can deceive these people i can make them believe what i want them to believe and get away with it and somebody had put it was nick actually who had said it's a story of a man like in a way becoming a monster which is what del toro is really excelling at Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like that's really cool but it's also him sort of becoming the monster that he already believes himself to be like it's him reducing himself to what he already sort of 
believes himself to be and is trying to like disprove and run away from and get validation from other people so he can avoid that because there's that whole like and it's not too front and center which i think is really interesting but that whole bit about like his family him and his mother and that abandonment um and him again using all of this as a way to get status get recognition get the love that he couldn't give him her yeah um so i think that was also really fascinating dimension to this so i imagine that was much more fleshed out in the novel maybe or maybe you can say I... what the novel did better but i want to say two more things about what yeah the, story. Go for the it. all the scenes of him carrying out any con like whether it be him as a mentalist or when it was him in real life like doing the bit with the police officer those are just so fascinating to me like they were always engaging i was always just like kind of on the edge of my seat really of trying to see him do this and like walk that tightrope of conning these people and then able to do it and then kate blanchett's character like her being the femme fatale i thought mm -hmm. that was impeccably executed in all the scenes of her and bradley cooper's character Stanley trying to psychoanalyze each other again i like it was so enthralling i was amazed by it yeah but what were you because yeah reading the novel made you like the film less reading the novel was a mistake and the reason <laughs> is because the movie is so vastly different like the overall plot's the same but the fun part about reading a book and then watching the movie it's based on is pointing out the little details that they get right and like how they interpreted that and stuff and none of the little details are correct it is almost like the people who wrote the novel who was Guillermo del Toro and somebody else. I can't remember who they, it was as if they didn't actually read the book themselves. It was as if they like had it explained to them by another person. So it's just like the, the overall mm. plot is very similar to the same, but very, very different. And I, I did have some problems with the way that they interpreted it in Guillermo del Toro's, like all of his work is about people who are, is like him connecting to monsters. Like he loves monsters and he thinks that they are like beautiful things that he wants to connect to. And like the, like the true monsters are people. And in this movie, like, yeah, you'd think a movie about carnival freaks would be a good thing for him to touch upon and like be a part of that theme. But it is supposed to be like in the book, in the movie, he's trying to make Stan like a sympathizable character. Like mm -hmm. you, you sympathize with him or you can empathize. He's empathizable. Like you can empathize with his situation of what's going on with him. And you are like, he has moments of being good. And in the book, he's just detestable, like horrible, terrible person that just gets worse and worse and worse. And he kind of does that in the movie, but not to the same degree, because I think he's, it feels like Guillermo del Toro is still trying to connect with him in a way to where he's like, I pity him, but I understand it. And in the mm -hmm. book, it's just like he goes so far that it's just fascinating to watch how far he goes. And it's like at the by the end of it, it's like you cannot connect with him. You can barely empathize with him. And it's just crazy to see how far he's willing to go for the bare like minimum of anything. Right. And it's just it's paired with that difference, as well as the fact that every detail is different from the book that made it sort of a disappointing experience. It is beautiful. It is a gorgeous movie. The sets are in probably the best sets in any movie of the year, except for maybe the French dispatch. 
and some of the best cinematography of the year, except for maybe the best, except for maybe for the French Dispatch. But mm-hmm. it was impeccably done otherwise. Like, I really did think directorially and technically it was a masterpiece. I just think the story was lackluster compared to the book. Like, it did not sell it. And the thing you were talking about, how much you loved all of his cons and stuff, it's not even the tip of the iceberg. Oh, really? Like, the things he does in, in the book, I was so excited to see how they captured it in the movie, and they just did not do 90% of them. <laughs> and they are, Dang. like, you thought it was crazy in the book. They are balls to the wall, insane in the novel. Like, the things he convinces people and the things he cons out of people is absolutely ridiculous. Like, you were like, how is he even able to do this? Like, it's believable, and you're like, I see how he can con people. It is the 20s. People are more... Uh, they're less skeptical and they're willing to believe certain crazy things. And he does like convince people in a lot of insane ways. And I just, yeah, it's just so different. It's so, so very different. And I loved the book after I read it. I was like, this is going to be great. I'm so excited. And because it was so different, there's just so many, it's like watching Dune is like, there's so many things, like the things they changed were the things that like had a lot of good impact in the book. And so mm-hmm. all of the impact was kind of gone. All of the impact is gone in Nightmare Alley compared to the book. Like, the book, the impact just hits and hits and hits in a lot of ways, and it's great. There was, like, maybe two scenes they got accurate, and one of them was the cop scene. Right. That is almost, like, straight out of the book. They changed a couple. Like, I was being nitpicky, and I was like, oh, he didn't say this or he didn't say that. He said different things. But it, it was essentially straight out of the book. That is what happens with his interaction with the cop. And then the scene with David Strathairn's character toward the end of his character's appearances in that movie, mm-hmm. that was almost correct everything was correct except they got one detail wrong and in the book it makes him a terrible person and in the movie it makes him more empathizable like he just makes a mistake gotcha in the book it's still a mistake but it's like a mistake that could have been fixed if he wasn't a terrible person (laughs) got it which is also a little nitpicky but it definitely changes your impression of him and like in the book that is the start of his descent is that mistake he makes because like he starts off and he's like i made a mistake but i got away with it and like I got what I wanted out of it. And in the movie, it's just kind of like, I made a mistake. I feel like a terrible person. And it's supposed to make us empathize with him. And it just, I don't know. Gotcha. The book is just so good. You should read the book. I'm trying not we'll to spoil it. Have you really see it. I'm glad, though, that I was able to see the movie beforehand. Yeah, I will rewatch the movie. And try and, I will try and come at it from a perspective of it is a separate thing. Now that I know that it is nothing like the book. Mm-hmm. Because there were cool parts. One of the things that's not in the book is the... Uh, the jarred babies. Oh yeah, yeah. That's not in the book at all. That's definitely a Del Toro touch. Yeah, sure. I liked that in the movie. Like I thought that was good. And they definitely take Willem Dafoe's character and they beef him up in the movie. Like he's he's not in the book that much. But yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was just okay. You should definitely revisit it. You sh- I you should also revisit. see the original movie like the 1940s that is also what i was trying to do and i didn't do it because i heard it's on the criterion channel i should watch it yeah try that because i heard this one was more or less like from barry i heard that it was pretty much similar like the trajectory this one takes compared to that one so i guess maybe in both film adaptations they try to make him less of a despicable character so you can follow along more and it's less of a let's watch this guy get even more despicable but let's like watch him do that but want him not to do that and want him to like hold on to a bit of that humanity but hmm. it's more like breaking bad where he isn't even like a a likable character in the beginning he's just sort of a normal person and he just becomes 
deplorable by the end of it. Mm -hmm. And that is what made the book so great to me. You should check it out. You can borrow my copy. Gotcha. What is your number two? My number two is Dune. Dune. it. It is, I mean, this is what IMAX is made for. This is what Dolby Sound is made for. It was just such an incredible experience in theater. And I saw it twice in IMAX. And it is lovely. Like, this is, when you want film to just transport you, this does that. And so that's, like, the chief reason of why, like, I love this so much. And we have talked about before, like, on that whole Dune roundtable, it definitely has flaws. It has moments of the book that it cuts out that I feel were essential, or at least were, like, very good parts of the book. Like, the whole dinner sequence. Rest in peace to that. I would have loved to see that on screen, but alas. Um, and then that would have been awesome, dude. Yeah, but I feel like that's when I read the book now. I just feel like it would be better as a miniseries. Like you could just get into the nuances more. But seeing it on the big screen was fun. You could. Well, that's like that's the trade off. Like the scope of this that he's going for can't be achieved on a miniseries. It just can't. And so that's Unless why you're I like Game of Thrones. Like, well, sure, but even then, like, yeah, like, I know. Again, there the VFX. Like this is like the top-notch vfx yeah that there's like almost ever been yeah and you definitely couldn't get out on tv series like it could be good but it can't be this level of great so that's why i can accept that okay we need to make some cuts we need to streamline it a bit Mm -hmm. so we do sacrifice some of that nuance that is very very good in the book and i had also said in our dune episode like i personally would have approached this adaptation of dune entirely differently but even still I've grown to really, really love this film. Mm. It's immersive from top to bottom. The way that he is able to create these distinct atmospheres for each of the worlds that we're on. I thought that was great. Like not just the look of it, the costuming, the designs, all of that, the score as well. I know you weren't too big on it, but I'm big on it. Like all those alien tones and sounds. It's good. It's it's because I was so amped up for a lot of the other scores this year. I didn't think it would match up. And then all the other ones were just disappointments. So this one is probably top tier for the year. <laughs> gotcha. In terms of scores. I think it does. It gives us such a good texture to it. It's also really instrumental in immersing you in the film, which again, I think is it's like one of its greatest achievements. So many scenes are just standouts as well for the year for me. Like the Gam Jabbar scene is great. And that is like straight, straight from the book. Like that's that a direct is, yes. And it's beautiful. Like the directing in that, the way that they're able to showcase like the voice getting used. And the way that, like, the Reverend Mother is just captured in the shadows and has the veil over her face. Like, all that's great. The acting as well in that scene from Chalamet, on point. Like, all the little micro variations in his face as he starts getting the pain. What's in the box? <laughs> What's in the box? You should have done that. Oh, Jesus Christ, that was horrible, Ryan. What do you mean? What's in the box? What's in the box? It's, it's what's in the box? What's in the box? <laughs> Okay, that was good. I'll yeah, give you that. What's in the box is not good, right? What's in the box? What's in the box office show? Am I right, guys? <laughs> You're done. We were canceled. The show is over. <laughs> Shout out to the show, guys. Give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter. We don't use Twitter that much, but give us a follow on Instagram, guys. The Instagram that you have to download every single time. You gotta. <laughs> no, I just do it on the computer now because I'm also. Oh, really? Gotcha. Yeah, I was able to log into our official account on. Uh, the computer it's through my facebook account <laughs> oh really I forgot about that yeah. yeah um but yeah the gamja bar scene incredible the first sandworm sequence 
also a great showcase in the VFX, again, like top tier. Like even yeah. Nolan has said it's like the best combination of practical and visual effects he's ever This seen. is very true. That very is high there. praise. And again, the cinematography in that scene I love. You, again, we had those disagreements about the cinematography and does it showcase the scale they're going for? I believe it does. It worked for me at least. I also love the Jameis visions. Like that was a new thing they did for the movie. And I thought that was a great showcase in like how to adapt certain material. Because I think that elevated it in a way the book wasn't able to do. Mm -hmm. And I also love the, like you were talking about how it does lean into more action. Like it's not able to be as intellectual and highbrow and discussion based as the book. But I think one way that they were able to sort of keep that same energy of like, it's not about the massive action sequences. It is more about like these interpersonal conflicts. I love the way that they go for that 1v1 as the climax rather than an all out battle. And I do think it has an arc for Paul. Go watch the movie if you haven't seen it. Definitely look hard to see mm-hmm. the arc that is happening there. But I do think there is one. I don't think he goes like unchanged throughout the whole film. Um, and the ending as well, people were, I mean, I knew it was part one going into it. So I wasn't caught off guard. But people were feeling a little like short staff. What am I trying to say? Short-handed? Short whatever. Short-cummed. Short-cummed. <laughs> Why did you? The way, the way you turned your head to do it as well. Short comes. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, they thought it was too abrupt. Yeah. The ending of the film it came out of nowhere. I was like, I can sort of see that point, but again, I was ready for it. And I was also ready to go another two hours if they wanted to continue and like adapt the whole book. Like at that moment in time, I was mm-hmm. like, I'm ready. I'm I ready probably could have sat for a four hour doing movie. Like, I would have fine with that. If I could sit through Zack Snyder's Justice League and come out loving it, I could probably do the same thing for a Denis Villeneuve Dune four-hour movie. Right. And then I also think, like, I recently started reading Dune Messiah. And I'm telling you, because of how, like, visually stunning this film is, I'm able to, like, interpret all those scenes from the book with that vivid sensory palette that we get from this film. Mm -hmm. And it is an absolute treat to do that. Like, I keep filtering all of it through the vision that we got from Denise yeah. Dune Part 1, and it is fantastic. So I can't wait for the new films to come out. That is true. When did you first read Dune? I was reading it, like, bits and pieces before the new one came out, and then before the movie came out, I finished, like, the final 300 pages of it the day before. Oh, because I read most of it before it came out. And I had already seen the trailer, and so I was still kind of fil- in a lot of screenshots, so I was filtering it through that sort of, I guess, the impression I got of the trailer as opposed to the actual movie itself and to what I thought it would be. And I'm kind of still doing that as I'm still reading it because I'm not done with it. Yeah. And so I kind of enjoy, like, it's a combination of the things that I liked about it plus things that I'm adding to it that I think would be better than what was done to it. And I think that is cool. Like, I enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nightmare Alley, it was like, I envisioned it one way. And then I was, I, I did see the trailer at that point. So I was like envisioning the characters being played by Bradley Cooper specifically. I think all the other characters were who they were in the book, different than who they were in the movie. But Bradley Cooper is very expertly cast in that movie, I will say. And I think if they had done it more accurately to the book, he still would have done a great job. Like, I think mm-hmm. reading the book, he could have played that character still as well. 
gotcha, like yeah. if it was adapted honestly Boom. but yeah but enough about nightmare alley dune an amazing technical achievement a true spectacle in enrapturing experience i'm sure. all for desert power dune power my number two i think i can guess your number one I mean, we'll get there but it's just i thought dune was gonna be your number one so now i'm a little taken aback if you hadn't said dune for number two i for sure would have guessed your number one right I well, guess I'll just would have we'll, been yeah yeah we can guess each other's number ones. Mine's gonna be pretty obvious, but my number five now that I've swapped them is Spider Man No Way Home. Gotcha. That has taken the place of Dune. My argument for Spider Man No Way Home was that it was just pure entertainment, irregardless of the plot, irregardless of the plot holes. I think Spider Man No Way Home is just purely entertainment. I think it is just sitting down and just enjoying a bucket of popcorn and watching a really good Spider Man movie and just having a good time while it's happening and just definitely just like fan like fan service and all that stuff which isn't always the best but it works here because it does fit into the kind of silly plot that they are stringing along and compared to dune i just thought you know there were parts of dune where i just kind of sat there and i was bored or i wasn't entertained or i thought was bad or weird and there was no part of spider-man no way home where i was like this is so bad i'm not enjoying it like the entire time i did just sit down just in just pure entertainment the entire time just not thinking about it. it did the thing where if dune is walking that tightrope of cerebral and action entertainment spider-man no way home did the thing of just falling off the tightrope into the action section without trying to be cerebral too much like well it, that's it, true it, i i would say the difference there is like the tightrope a film like that is walking is not cerebral because it's never going to be a cerebral thing if it's part sure. of marvel but it Emotional, was trying to be like say. action with the yeah, emotion, which I do think it struck a balance between. Like for us sure. personally, that one particular scene didn't, but I know a lot of people it did hit. But then the spider therapy scene did hit for me. So I think it was able to hit emotion. Neither beats. of them really hit for me, but I was there for the entertainment. Uh, I was chewing my popcorn, having a good time, and that's why it made number five. Also, not a lot of good movies came out last year. I didn't think an MCU movie would make the list, but... It did, and it got higher up than you think it would. So, well, that's true. Well, it's also your favorite movies. Like, you can do it based on like the experience, like the feeling you had. Like, for sure, there's that's better movies was, than yeah. No Way Home, but for the sure. feeling it gave you, I mean, mm, so good. It was really good. My number four, which actually gave me a better feeling the entire way through than Spider-Man No Way Home, was Belfast. Whoa, there you go. I just had a great time. It was so light. For the most of it, with dips into darkness that were just so brutally honest that I thought was fantastic. It was also taking my, like, Spider-Man No My Home was meeting my expectations. Belfast was exceeding my expectations because they were so low. I did not <laughs> think true. Kenneth Branagh would deliver, like, a really good movie. I thought it'd be okay at best. And he blew my expectations out of the water. Like, I had a good time. I loved the characters. I loved all the dialogue. I loved the way it was shot, other than the times they cut off the headroom, which pissed me off. <laughs> uh, I love the uh, the story. I love how honest, it, like the honesty of it. Like when you see a a filmmaker try and take like something from their life and document it as closely to reality as possible while still being artistic, it often falls flat. And this one was not one of those that did that. It reminds me of all that jazz in that, like, it is an honest look at this period of that person's life. And from his perspective, he was having a good time. He was having fun for the most part. He enjoyed it. And so it was a happy movie, as opposed to all that jazz where <laughs> Bob Fosse was dying and just had a horrible experience in life. 
and was really just at the end of his ropes. And so it was very depressing. But Belfast is very much like it's light. It's happy. It's from his perspective. He's having a good time. And it's also viewing these horrible events that are happening for no reason from his point of view as well, which I think is like an easy way to sort of address the horribleness that is happening. And it's also very engaging. And I love the characters. I love the performances. I just love movies that make me feel good. And this was definitely one of them. Like through and through all the way through. Felt good. Even during the sad parts, I still had a good time. So good for you, Kenneth Branagh. You won me over. He hasn't won me over since Hamlet, bro. I know. We were talking about that going in. You're like, is it going to be a good movie? I don't want to see the movie. But I'm glad that he was able to bring you over to his side. And then he'll kill all that goodwill with Death on the Nile. (laughs) But at least he had one. Yeah, at least he He had had a banger. Number three is a movie that is not on your list or your honorable mentions. It is Spencer. Oh, yeah. I thought it was great. I thought it was through and through really, really good. I loved everything they did with Kristen Stewart's character. I think her performance is Oscar worthy. Like, I think she should win the Oscar. See, that's the one, like, that's the thing where we disagree. I just couldn't get into her performance. Like, I could see the I love the over the topness of it. I think because it was just so intentional and because there was like purpose behind her being the over the top person that she was in that movie, I think it was great. She was the. Princess Diana that wasn't the real Princess Diana. She was the Princess Diana that the world saw. Like, that's what she was acting as. And it's showing how that performance that she gave as this very uh, pers- like public person sort of like started to tear her down uh, like psychologically. And it's also just a psychological thriller. Like, she goes nuts. And it's all from her perspective of going insane. Mm-hmm. And it's also, it is so uniquely shot. There's something very so very interesting about the grainy, overexposed nature of it that I was just so taken aback by because it just wasn't what I expected that I wasn't 100% on board with when it started, but won me over very quickly and just fell in love with how it looked. Like, I thought it was beautiful, especially because it was just not a way that I had ever seen a movie shot before. And I think it definitely took that sort of dark story that could have been very brooding and very sort of just hard to watch and made it sort of you know bright and colorful which kind of juxtaposed the story itself and mm-hmm. i it, the bright colors that you see in that movie that is what in the heights needed ryan in the <laughs> heights needed those bright and vibrant colors that an overexposed image could deliver and color correction as well right but i don't disagree is... i think that is definitely the biggest strength of the film is that cinematography like that should get like I would want that in the Oscar conversation for some for sure, but I don't for think sure. it's gonna be, which is bummer. Like, yeah, a big bummer. Um, but yeah, as then I said, again, like two years ago, Cold War got a cinematography nomination, which was the Polish uh, entry for their Best Picture race. And yeah, I don't know anybody else that had seen it other than me. At the That's time. true, because I remember you talking about that stuff, and I was like, what? No one has seen this movie. <laughs> and I had seen it because I took Alexa on Valentine's Day, which was a mistake. I'm sure. Why did you think? You said Cold I, War. Was, I watched the trailer and I said, look, it looks pretty romantic. And it was romantic. It was just very, very, very tragically romantic. <laughs> very depressing. And it is still about the Cold War, which is yeah. sad. But it was awesome. And I loved it. And she did not. And it was a bad choice. <laughs> there was no, it was a year where there were no, like, which is rom-coms out for Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. There were no rom-coms at all. There was Isn't one movie it... 
it was Crazy Rich Asians, I think, at the time, maybe. There was one movie out there that we had already seen like twice that we could have gone and seen again, or it was Go See Cold War, or just not see a movie at all. We probably yeah. shouldn't have seen a movie at all. <laughs> I was trying to recreate box. our first date, which was dinner and a movie. And we went to the places we had dinner at and saw the movie at for our first date. I thought it would be cute. And Cold War was not a cute movie. What was the movie you saw on your first date? It was Incredibles 2. <laughs> Fantastic. You should have just gone and rewatched that. At the you theater? Have dinner and then go home and have that. So you have the same movie, if not the same theater. Yeah, but Incredibles 2 isn't that good. Nah, it's good. It's not It's not good. as great. I mean, it had a lot to live up to. Couldn't do that, but... Well, my problem with is that Brad Bird was like, I'm not going to make a second one unless it's as good or even better than the first. And I'm like, you didn't even get close. <laughs> you said you didn't fulfill your promise. I said you didn't even you like, liar. get close, bro. <laughs> you didn't even try. But anyway, a movie that should not get a sequel is Spencer, which is my number three movie, and I think it is phenomenal. I loved everything about it. I loved all the performances. I loved all the side performances of all the servants that she was close with because in a lot of these like uh, royalty movies and royalty TV shows, you're hearing from the royalty. And the only royalty you hear talk other than Princess Diana is, apart from her sons, is her husband, Prince Charles, and the queen for one scene. Like, other than that, every other royal member of the family is silent, and it's just her talking to the staff, the help, the the person who's in charge of the house, the chef. Like, because that's who she was. She was Princess Diana, the princess of the people. And so she was socializing with these people who would not normally have socialized with royalty, and I loved her interactions with it. And parts of it were relieving for her. And parts of it made it even more stressful. God, Timothy Spall was so good in that movie. He was so good. I want to watch all the other movies. Because all we know him from is Harry Potter. He's Wormtail in Harry Potter. <laughs> and it's all we know him from. And I've seen him in two things now that he is just so brilliantly good in. He's just such a brilliant actor. And he's got no recognition. And now I want to go see all the other movies where he's like a leading man. But it's like an independent movie that nobody saw. Like, I want to see those movies and watch him just be a good actor because he's just brilliant. Do it, man. But anyway, Spencer's my number three. Loved it. My number two, I don't think it's what you think it's going to be. It's The French Dispatch. Whoa, that is crazy. Yeah. Interesting. I, it was the first movie, like, I'm pretty sure I saw Last Night in Soho first. I watched Last Night in Soho. I said, this is the first movie this year past the Oscars that I sat down in the theaters and enjoyed. The French Dispatch was the first movie this year that I sat down in theaters and loved. It's also one of, I guess, three that that is true for. Well, four. I'll, I'll throw in Belfast as one that I loved. I was going to say Belfast is something that I liked, but thinking about it, I did love it. It was one of four movies this year that I loved. And you know me, diehard Wes Anderson guy. It's the only movie that can top Last Night in Soho as being more stylistic of a movie this year that I'd seen. And that's because Wes Anderson just goes crazy with his style. Like it's over the top Wes Anderson that I feel like a lot of people wouldn't enjoy other than me who loves Wes Anderson. <laughs> I love Wes Anderson. My biggest problem, the only problem I have with the movie, the only one is that there is not as much heart in it as the rest of his other movies. All of his other movies have a very strong heart at the core of it. And this one isn't about heart. It's just about telling separate stories in this French town that he thought would be interesting. And in a way, that's pretty cool. Like, I think it's a great idea that he didn't try to make a heart. He easily could have with Bill Murray's character. 
but he didn't i don't think he tried to he was just trying to sell like quirky stories that each individually kind of had a heart but they didn't connect whatsoever and there was no emotional core to it that lasted the entire way and the big bummer of the movie is that the stories got progressively worse like the first story is the best one second story is okay the third story is the worst of the three and i wish i do kind of wish he flipped the order but or maybe just change it in a way so maybe the second one was first the third one was in the middle so that you could still get our attention but then you could end on that one that was just so great mm-hmm. but i guess he has a reason for everything but god it was just so it was the best shot movie of the year for sure i have not seen tragedy macbeth i have not seen west side story and i have not seen uh licorice pizza which i know are all three sort of big in the air for what could be uh, best cinematography, but from the things I've seen, the French Dispatch was the most gorgeously shot Wes Anderson movie I've seen, and I think it was brilliant. And I think it should win because he his movies are long overdue for a best cinematography award, and I think right. this is the one that should get it because it was the best shot. It was also the best set design of the year, better than Dune, better than Last Night in Soho, better than The Last Duel. Set design was brilliant. I was totally immersed in this fictional French town that he just created out of his mind. Like I was yeah. immersed in every detail and every crook and and every little thing that he threw in there. It was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And I loved it. It was just so crazy stylistic and crazy Wes Anderson that it just took me in and just sucked me in. It's not my favorite Wes Anderson. It's probably... It's like the top of the middle tier. Like it, it's it's not quite in the top tier, but it is definitely near the top of the middle tier for Wes Anderson movies because you just can't be Grand Budapest Hotel and Fantastic Mr. Fox. You right. just can't do it. But this one comes close, but it's because he puts the heart to the side to just make a brilliantly filmed movie that is awesome and has way more nudity than I thought it would. <laughs> that was that was a, a very big surprise when I watched the movie. There were a lot of big name actors who just showed all. What? Very really? brief. Yeah, I was very shocked. I was like, you're showing so much right now. Like, it's not just like boobs, like the show, everything. I was just so like, I did not think that that would appear in the movie, but it works. Like, it's great. It's very emotional. I think it's a really, really good movie, and I think you should see it. Very. Oh, I definitely will. I Whenever will. you get the when it gets back in theaters for Oscar noms, because that's what I want. I will go with you because I want to see it again. It left theaters by the time I was trying to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad I got to see it before it was gone. Yeah, hopefully it should come back. I'm really hoping it will. Yeah, so I can catch it and then update you before the Oscar thing. But yeah. All right, now it's time to unveil our number one picks. Now I'm going to go first. Did you want to write it down and try and guess? Uh. I sure. think it's pretty obvious. Well, I hinted at it before, so yeah, like it was already embedded in the recording. So if it is the yeah. one I think it is, which it has to be, there's literally no other answer. So I don't know. Hasekushi is looking pretty good right now. <laughs> I could right. throw it. I could be like, oh, I saw it a second time, and let me tell you, second time is amazing. That would be the biggest shock of the year. It would be. You see it tw- <laughs> the first time, and it's the worst movie ever seen. But you see it a second time, and it's just a masterpiece. It's just absolutely brilliant because you know it's coming. It's like All Jared right. Leto was just right. such a genius. Yeah, my number one movie is Drive My Car. It is brilliant. It is so good. I was not exhausted when I watched it. I was (laughs) fully awake and I was living through it, bro. I was not. 
I was not super excited to watch the movie. I almost didn't go because it's three hours long and I just, we were starting at like eight o'clock. I did not know if I wanted to sit through that. I was not like stoked for it. I thought it would be like good, but not great. And it just blew me out of the water. I thought it was incredible. And the thing that I like most about it is that there's so many elements in the story that you think would have big, like explosive dramatic potential to where there'd be like this huge plot thing happening. And just nothing like that happens. It's all just dialogue. It's all just people just sitting down and just having conversations about what is going on in their life. And the dialogue is so beautiful. It is so beautifully it written. Is. And the performances are so fantastic. And it, it's just so expertly crafted, just how well it's balanced throughout, how well it's paced to keep me excited. Like, I did check my phone a couple of times to check the time because I just, I wanted to know when it would end because I was tired. But having seen it once and knowing where it's going, I could probably watch it again without having to check the time because I'm like, ah, I can't tell how much was left from here. And I'm mm-hmm. just having a good time. And it's just so, so beautiful. And it's gorgeous the way it's shot. It's, it's the story is just mind-blowingly good. I need to read the short story by Murakami. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it is a very short story. It's like no more than 70 pages, I think. It's definitely very, very short. Which is crazy that it got turned into a three-hour movie. <laughs> but they really embellished every part of that story, I guess. Like, like really, like, invigorated it and turned it into something that was emotional and brilliant. And I will say, it is kind of disappointing this is my number one. As much as I love it, and as much as I think it's a great movie, so many years before this one, 2020 excluded, there have been better movies each year, and it's been, like, amazing to watch. You know, Parasite, 2019 was stellar. Parasite, really Lighthouse, was. Farewell. I went back to look at our list from 2019, and I was like, dang. Yeah. That was good. Good yeah. year. 2018 had like the favorite and Roma and things like that. And so like there have been like great movies coming out each year. And this was the only movie. This is the French Dispatch were the only movies that I thought were like really, really great. Drive My Car, especially. Every single thing else was like, I just really liked it. But this was like top tier. I think this is great, great cinema. I was just hoping there'd be more choices like that. And I was hoping it would be a harder choice to make. And it was sad that Drive My Car was just an easy number one for me. Like, I was hoping there'd be more choices, and I thought it would be, like, a harder choice, and it just wasn't. It was just leagues above everything else. I know it's not going to win Best Picture. I really think it should, though. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I think it's beautiful. It's so, just so introspective into these characters that most movies just don't do. Like, it's just these characters talking about their lives and their feelings. It's just about people driving in a car, man. (laughs) Very like true. that's really what it is and that car such a gorgeous car like i spent Iconic, a good yeah. hour looking for to see if i could find <laughs> a car in my area for a reasonably reasonable good price because it was just such a nice looking car i thought it was gorgeous like just a good like everyday commuter car i thought it was beautiful and it wasn't like stylized in the way that the french dispatch was or that last night soho was but it definitely knew what it was and it definitely knew how to adhere to that style which is why I do appreciate it. It's stylistic in its own very subtle way. And that's why I like it. It's not generic. It's not bland. It is exciting and interesting, but in a way that is much more subtle than anything else, which is almost even better. Which is even better. Let me say it. If you can pull <laughs> off stylism in a way that isn't obvious, props to you. You did something that nobody else could. And I think that's beautiful and incredible, and I'm jealous of your ability. Anytime I think about making a movie, it is 
balls to the wall stylism in a way that's not subtle. And I'm very jealous of your ability to be subtle with it because I think it is just a beautiful, beautiful film. You should all take three hours out of your day to go watch it. <laughs> it is a lot, but it is fantastic. I got Alexa interested in it just by talking to her about it. And she does not like three hour movies and she very rarely watches foreign films, but she's willing to watch this one one day. If I ever get my hands on a DVD copy or if it right. ever goes on a streaming service. Well, it's yeah, I think it's actual release in theaters is still yet to happen. Yeah, It'll probably sure. come out soon, but yeah, we were fortunate enough to, catch it Peter quite early yeah so yeah that's my number one pick is driving my car i loved it i think it deserves all the awards i definitely think it deserves best adapted screenplay but i don't think it'll get it like i think so too i don't even think it'll get nominated but it should i think power of the dog is probably gonna win it just because it's more like known but driving my car like i should read the screenplay but i mean it if it's it's either if it's either as good or worse than the book then like then like they did an amazing job adapting it and making it into something that is not in the in the writing. But if it's better than the movie, then I mean, talk about an amazing short story if it's better. Right. I can't imagine it being any better because they clearly go into more detail in the movie. Things that aren't even in the, the short story, I imagine. But it is just an incredible, incredible movie. And I I will go see it again with you when it's back when it goes into <laughs> so theater. I can see the ending of it. So you can see it. Yeah, you can physically watch it with your eyes. Gotcha. Yeah. Right, so definitely to do. Well, yeah, it'll be my number one. And which, I did write it down, so we'll see. Yes, I think we'll be able to guess it is a film that I'm sure most people have been able to see. It is Bo Burnham's Inside. Oh, dude, I was totally wrong. What? What'd you guess? <laughs> I said licorice pizza. I didn't know we were oh, considering. That would... You know what? I can see that because I didn't put it in my honorable mentions. Yeah, and I was like. Where is Licorice Pizza? Where is it in here? Did it not even make honorable mentions or did you just nope. forget about it? It did not. Like not like it's in honorable honorable mentions. Like it's in the next tier, but it did oh, not geez. be able to get in there. And we'll talk about it whenever you actually I guess I'm not surprised by inside. I just didn't think it was in consideration. But I guess that makes sense. Because it, yeah, it is I more do. of a special than a movie, but yeah, you go for yeah, it. But I do consider it a film. Because I mean, show me any other special that's like similar to this. And I think it is such a testament to the lockdown experience, the whole moment when all of us were forced to be inside. And it is a comedy special, but I believe it is much, much more than just that. I view it as a cinematic masterpiece because it is able to venture inside the mind of this troubled, but I see him as a genius creator. And he proves it many, many times, like his versatility in his musicality, like all those different genres that he has. Uh, and all of them are bops. I mean, come on. He still is able to retain, like even from his earliest days, he had all those clever lyrics and the wordplay, yet he was able to incorporate interesting, deep messages underneath. And in this special, he certainly extended that part of his repertoire a lot more. Um, and there is an actual narrative here, I feel, with his the deterioration of his mental state and the shift that he has from initially starting this as a way to just distract himself from, oh, I'm bored, I have to be inside all this time. But then it becomes like this escape and this crutch from not having to go outside and face all the pressures that he was dealing with and was not coping well with beforehand. So all of that, I think, definitely makes it a full-on film. And then all the themes that he touches on, I just responded to in the best way. Like, I think it was 
interesting the way he did about it. Of course, he always makes them humorous. They're always a part of an inter- like a fun, interesting song. But then the things that he's saying in them, I think are great. Like he has the musings on comedy and the social climate. So he's trying to figure out, okay, well, if comedy is even a worthwhile field to continue doing at this point in time, since there's so many major issues facing us, is comedy really going to be able to change any of that? What can I offer by just being a comedian? And then also in the song Problematic, he's talking about the whole, uh, like, how do you be a comedian when we're in more sensitive times, more um, socially aware times? where you don't want to hurt people, you want to make them laugh, but then there are some jokes that could, in the way they're interpreted, hurt people, and he doesn't want to do that, of course. So mm-hmm. how do I continue doing this job if that's a line I have to you know, walk? Um, his critiques of capitalism, the whole Socko song, this is how the world works, which I think in and of itself, like obviously the lyrics are pretty blatant in what it's commenting on, but then the way the story, or that, yeah, the story of that song unfolds, where he you know, the stand-in for the wealthy, privileged, white guy elite is exerting power and punishing Sako for criticizing him in too radical or too pointed of a way, um, showing how, like, that is the system of oppression taking place. Dylan, I'm going all in. This is my number one. Bro, we already talked about I understand, but we already talked about it, Well, we did, but this is my... uh, Because some people might not see that. That was, like, buried in a grab bag or something. So this is my number one. So I want to go all out. Because I've seen it twice since then, I think. I think I've also seen this film three times in total. And I want to talk about all the things I picked up on. So buckle up, okay, buddy. Okay, well, hurry up, brother. Don't go through every single song. <laughs> you walk. I'm not going through every song, but I'm going through every theme. And I'm just t- talking on some of the songs that relate hurry to up, it. Tired. Like the Jeffrey Bezos songs, which who doesn't want to hear more about the Jeffrey Bezos songs? Come on. But that obviously Jeffrey great pop. Bezos. Exactly. See, you love it. You remember it. But him facetiously giving applause to the world's richest man for reaching this upper echelon of success that, yeah, we're saying, oh, he got there completely by himself. Like, he just had an unmatched work ethic and determination that no one else is able to possess. And that's why he's, like, the very tippy top of society. Uh, And then the intern song and, like, the corporate brain awareness, things like that, uh, definitely playing into that as well. Also commentary on the internet and social media, which makes sense, given that he was molded by the internet, like us in our generation, and his career was started by the internet, posting videos on YouTube, and is still like really tied with the internet. Like a streaming service is where the special was put, and so songs like "Welcome to the Internet" very obvious how he's capturing the weirdness and the wonder, and also the damage of the internet. Songs like "Sexting," <laughs> looking at how people are courting each other in the modern day, which again is humorous. Like the A, 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 T, and T. That part still makes me laugh every single time. But then the, um, like, there's something more that he's touching on with that song about how intimacy has been diminished or changed. Like, it's more alienation. Um, there's the streamer bit, the video reaction bit. That um, is funny. Yeah, those are spot on parodies, of course. The meditations on mental health as well, right? He, it's so like that message where he's saying to himself, like we find out he's saying it to himself, but he's just saying in general, like, don't commit suicide, guys. That's not good. That's bad. And then you see it projected on a future version of him with the longer hair and the longer beard. And this is clearly a someone with worse mental health, but it's him and he's listening to it and he's like not buying any of this stuff that previous him was saying. 
Like I thought that was so profound. Um, the ending of the song 30, which is also a bop, but then it just took a very like dreary turn at the end of it. All Eyes on Me, which is a fantastic song. Like there's so many that I keep going back and forth of like, oh, it's my best song. But I feel like it has to be All Eyes on Me because I think it's just so masterful. The way it's able to comment on like the anxieties of performing, the whole the panic attacks that made him quit for like five years, but also his craving for the validation that performing can bring. Like being able to hear the whole audience being the maestro that's controlling when and when, like when and where they're able to have these laughs, um, saying things like get your hands up, all eyes on me, like those orders he's giving in the song, the way he's able to, again, like control that crowd. Very fascinating stuff. Then finally, the introspection on his art and creativity. Like we get various songs that comment on that, like the don't want to know where he's questioning, is the audience responding to his work? Does it make it less meaningful if people aren't consuming it or if they're consuming it like half-heartedly, like being on their phones or is it on the background or if they're just not at all consuming it? Like, is this vulnerable act of creation that he's doing meaningless if people aren't able to see it in any form? And then does that make him meaningless? Like, those are sort of those questions that he's asking there, which I thought hit home. Fascinating stuff. The video react bit where he was showing his mindset like that loop he's going through of he's criticizing his work because he's seeing this pretentious need to make every song have a deeper meaning but then he criticizes that criticism because he's saying that's a self-defense mechanism so he doesn't get hurt by the criticism other people may levy against him but then he's also seeing it as an out because oh if i acknowledge my drawbacks then i won't have to change them at all because i'm absolved if i'm self-aware then it's okay like that's what was fascinating his look who's inside again like seeing the full circle nature of the special like he's now back in a room alone making content like he did way back then when he was in youtube um but that was really cool and then being able to see the peaks behind the curtain where we're seeing him setting up shots doing testing out the lighting playing back his songs the camera yeah almost dropping the camera was so cool and you think like you're like did he stage that or was that him restaging it if that like had actually happened like it is something he would do right exactly um so i love that because it's showing us like the artifice that is involved in bringing us what is like this special is the most intimate look at him we've ever gotten but he's showing like oh all these random songs or whatever like they're not just random spur of the moment outpourings of who he is or what he cares about or what he thinks like he is deliberately trying to bring us into the fold let us connect with him, let him share his vision with us. And I love that he chose to do it by showing us the things that he's doing in order to bring us a special, like all the ways that he's staging this and making it happen. Like he's better able to make us connect with him by pointing out the artifice involved, which is great, which I think is that's like the artistry that is involved with him there. Like, I don't know. It's so funny and moving and thought-provoking it's so entertaining i think so creative i just love it man i think it captures like it captures who he is it captures a moment in our culture and history i think it's pure art it is my number one film of 2021 i think it's the only thing that came out of the pandemic that reflected the pandemic in a way that i thought was artistic and just in general good I thought every other thing was just sort of slapsticky or bad or inaccurate or just kind of silly and just like, or like, just like 
feeding into the obvious, but this was actually something that was nuanced and individual and personal that I thought was really focused on trying to like develop that feeling of being stuck inside for so long where everything else was more about like what a global event that was occurring. How crazy is this? And this is more of like this personal individual reaction to how this is enveloping him throughout the story. I think that was the thing that made it stand out. I, I just couldn't give it an honorable mention or anything else just because I know you think all the songs are bops, but for me, we talked about this earlier. They're hit and miss for me and sure. the misses were pretty big misses, but the hits were really big hits. That's true. But I, I just, you know, I just think it's very, very good, but I don't think it is phenomenal. Yeah. For me, I truly do think it is phenomenal. Like this is one of those things that I feel like it's a piece of art that people will look back on as one of those like testaments over time. Like it's something that, is encapsulated in the amber of history and we're going to look back and be like wow that was like this is how we know what was going on in their minds at this time mm-hmm. but again like it was also such a personal look at him and his own like issues and whatever but it was so relatable still like anyone like of course us being creatives we could relate in a way um but anyone could relate especially because of the internet stuff the social media stuff like it is such a impeccable flawless reflection of like what's going on in our lives that i think it really struck me it was like i just thought brilliant on every level and going back like any like i said watched it three times and i feel like whenever i do my rewatch in the future i'm gonna find new things like it's still going to be rewarding to go back and visit it so definitely like it was one of those things that i didn't know if it was gonna stick around and be number one but the more i thought about it i was like it just has to be. It's the one that stands out the most. It's so unique, I think, compared to everything else as well. So that is number one, Inside. All right. That is all the time we have. If you would like to give your thoughts on the show or make a suggestion for the movie of the week, you can email us at show at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. Be sure to tune in next week. Ryan, I want to do the thing they do on on Dak Shepard's podcast where we end each show by saying, well, I love you. So I love you, Ryan. I love you. Wait, we should have done, we should re-say all our top 10. Like, just do our top 10 real quick. Oh, shit. All right, fine. Well, my number 10 was The Last Duel. Nine was The Mitchells versus The Machines. Eight was Last Night Soho. Seven was The Green Knight. Six was Dune. Five was Spider-Man No Way Home. Four was Belfast. Three was Spencer. Two was The French Dispatch. And one was Drive My Car. My number 10 was In the Heights, 9 was Drive My Car, 8, Mass, 7, The Last Duel, 6, Belfast, 5, Stillwater, 4, Spider-Man No Way Home, 3, Nightmare Alley, and then 2, Dune, and of course, number 1, Inside. I look forward to watching some movies we missed and then trying to re-update our top 10 around Oscar time, because that's when we'll have seen them all. Uh, all right. Love you, Ryan. Love you, Dylan. Okay.